the blast from our past network. Hey everyone, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a quick second and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, podcasting after dark would not be possible. If you would like to help the show grow, please consider signing up at patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. You can also support the show by purchasing one of our awesome t-shirt designs on our merch store at podcastingafterdark.com or by picking up a copy of Seven Winters Alone by David Irons on paperback, hardback, or Kindle. Just search for Seven Winters Alone on Amazon or click on the link in the show notes. A free way to help out is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those reviews are huge for us and really helps get the show in front of new listeners. Again, thank you all so much for the love and support you've given us over these past few years. It really means the world to us. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, Phantasm 2, starring Angus Scrim, Reggie Bannister, and James Legrow. You think that when you die, you go to heaven? You come to podcasting after dark. Oh, boy. (laughs) Are we going to have some fun tonight, mother? Oh, my God. (laughs) So many quotes right in the first, like, 30 seconds. Sorry. I had to blow my load. I'm a reg man. I got a boogie down because I'm a reg man. I'm a reg man. Uh, What's up, everybody? It's... It's one half of the podcasting after dark team. I guess I'm more of the I don't know. I kinda wanna be Reggie. I like Reggie. Yeah, but, but you anyways, have a, you have a gray I'm, head of hair though. I do. And you got a you got a sexy chrome head. You still got <laughs> hair on your head, but you have man, you can do that baldish head thing I going on. You can do on. it. <laughs> you got a great head, Corey. <laughs> uh what's up everybody? It's me, Zach. And joining me as always is my bodacious I'm just sitting here at midnight with my bodacious co-host Corey. What's up, Sleazy C? How you doing, buddy? Thanks for uh, thanks for picking this one, my dude. I have a lot to say about Phantasm Two and just Phantasm in general. So do I. So do I. I. Uh, so not gonna lie, it's February. We're recording this in February of 2023. January's pick was Alone in the Dark. Uh, that's the one I broke down for our patron and friend Aaron Gilmer. Thank you, Aaron, once again, once again for doing that movie. Um, but I promised myself that my first pick of 2023 would be one of my all-time favorite movies. And dare I say, dare, dare, this is probably in my, it's definitely, it's definitely in my top 10, Phantasm 2. We're talking about 1988's Phantasm 2 celebrating it's 35th anniversary in 2023. So I've been on this kick for the past uh, year or so with both podcasts, just anniversary type movies. And um, we will be, we are, Corey and I are in the midst, in the middle, literally in the middle of breaking, uh, discussing John Carpenter's movies, The Carpenter Factor on our Patreon show, Auteur de Force. And when we finish that, we may 
We may move on to Don Coscarelli, but I've wanted to do a Don Coscarelli film for some time. Phantasm 2 is probably my favorite Don Coscarelli movie of all the times. So here we are with Phantasm 2. But before I get into any of my connection to it, because I have a pretty deep history with it, Corey, what's your connection with Phantasm 2? Definitely not as deep as yours. Um, I probably watched Phantasm 1 when I was a kid at some point and was like, okay, it didn't really stick with me. Um, and then when I was working at the video store, the mom and pop, <laughs> the porn store, guys and gals, you know how it goes. Um, when I was the working there. The mom and there, pop porn store? <laughs> so, you know, we have all the VHSs in the front and all that kind of stuff. And actually, I probably had the DVDs by this point. Anyways, I went on a kick. And uh, when I was working there, I, I watched all, I think it was four of them because this was around 2000. When did number four come out? Number four came out, I want to say, over 10 years ago. Over 10 oh. years ago. All right. So I, I guarantee you I watched one, two, and three. I think I watched one, two, three, and four. And I remember looking back on it, I loved the series. I loved watching them sort of back to back as a whole. And, you know, watching. 1998, fan- by the way. Which 1998. One? 1998. Okay. okay. So I probably did watch number four. I remember actually liking three two, one, then four. That was sort of how I went. And I know that's kind of weird. And again, this was just one viewing, but I yeah. really enjoyed three and I really enjoyed two. I was, I remember being shocked when they re, you know, cast uh, Michael in number two with James Legros, you know, uh, recast from a Michael Baldwin to James Legros. But looking back, he was actually my favorite Michael of the entire series. Um, I think Zach might actually feel the same. But uh, just moving forward with my sort of experience with Don Coscarelli, I've seen Beastmaster maybe once or twice. I've seen a handful of his movies maybe once or twice. Um, my my personal favorite movie of his is John Dies at the End. I, I adore that film. I love it. Zach and I saw it in the theater when it first came out. We saw it in L.A. And uh, I, I've loved it ever since, every time I watch it. Um, but Zach's talked about so many other of his movies, Survival Quest, was that one? Yeah, Survival Quest, yep. And then what was the one with the kids on the bikes, uh, the bike gang? Oh, Kenny and Company. Ke- Kenny and Company. So I love Don Coscarelli's world building. And, you know, like Zach mentioned, we may jump into him next after uh, uh, John Carpenter. If we don't do him next, he is a he is an auteur we will uh, go down with because... I want to see all of his movies now, especially after watching Phantasm 2 now for, I guess, the first time in my 40s, right? It, I probably haven't seen the Phantasms in 20 years at this point. So, Yeah, I would say that Don Coscarelli is uh, probably the most successful independent filmmaker of all time, um, in my opinion, because this is maybe the only movie that he did that had like a big studio behind it. I think pretty much everything else he's done for the most part has been fairly independent or independent production companies. Um, that's just my opinion, but yeah. He, and, and that's a solid pick with John dies at the end, by the way, but uh, Coscarelli is one of the more eclectic filmmakers. He's not just a horror filmmaker. He's done kids movies. He's done action movies. He's done fantasy films. He kind of runs the gamut. I'd say Bubba Hotep is a a weird kind of fusion of like drama, horror, and fantasy, you know, elements to it. 
Um, maybe more on the drama side, believe it or not. Yeah. But we'll talk about that when we discuss that movie, when we have him as our, our tour. And, and I, real quick, side note, I have seen Bubba Hotep as well, and I fucking loved it, but I, I only watched it once. I've revisited John Dies at the end at this point like five times. I fucking love that movie. But Bubba Hotep is fucking great. And I think the, the 4K Blu-ray literally just dropped today, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that is totally coincidental in, in regards to this. Um, and then Corey and I were kind of, were talking offline about the availability of Phantasm 2. The Shout Factory edition that came out, or Scream Factory, it's out of print. Uh, I'm sure they'll release a 4K down the road, uh, but they haven't yet. So when they do, hopefully it'll coincide with when we break him down as an auteur. Um, but this movie, I have a really deep history with this film. It came out in July of 88. Um I just turned 12, yeah, 12 years old, and my mom took me to the theater to see it. Uh, I grew up on the Phantasm 1 film. I watched it repeatedly with my brother. Eric brought it home, scared the crap out of me. I got night terrors because of the tall man, uh, Angus Scrim. He freaked me out. And as I got older, I was 12, almost a teenager, and playing with my G.I. Joes and playing Marvel uh, role-playing games and was so into like action adventure and here comes along this movie that is quite different in tone uh, to the original phantasm it's more of a like an action movie i equate it to alien and aliens in in many ways yeah and and real quick i just want to interject i think of this movie as a horror adventure um i think that's totally. a, a, a micro niche subgenre that not a lot of movies inhabit but if you want to think of another example i'd say army of darkness is a horror adventure film um and that's the category i'd put this in as well yeah it's also a buddy movie it's yep. also a road trip movie road movie yep yeah it's also a teen sex comedy no kidding um <laughs> but but yeah no i love this movie and i and i grew up loving it and my love for james legro uh like i only wanted to see Michael played by him moving forward. I totally respect and honor the fact that they brought a Michael Baldwin back in the role of Michael um, in the subsequent sequels, which is totally fine. You know, they kept the original cast, which is very cool. But um, I loved Legro as Michael and Reggie, I think, is at its finest. I mean, when we do, when we do the breakdown, you'll we'll be gushing over the fact that he just is a very well-rounded character um, but I love the man and I would go to Fangoria conventions meeting him and getting to know him. And he's a really cool dude outside of the role that he plays. In many ways, he's kind of very similar. Um, I'll tell a quick story if I haven't already. I, had a, I was at a Fangoria convention. It was my first one of my first times there. Met Reggie. He was setting up his table to sign autographs and take pictures or whatnot. I think it was just signing autographs. And he had a sign on his table that said autographs $15. I said, how much is, is a, I said, is it $15 for everything or $15? He's like, yeah, just take whatever you want. And I go, oh, okay. So he had like five or six different pictures and I grabbed all of them and he <laughs> signed each one completely different. One was have a fantastic day, P-H-A-N. Uh, Keep your pocket full of shells was another one. Get the fuck back, P-H-U-C. Um, <laughs> all these different ones, right? And he signed them all to me, and I gave him $15, and he kind of gave me this look like, 
did I do that right? I'm not sure if I did that right. <laughs> and, and I got one of his CDs. Uh, I still have it. He had a band called Reggie Bannister and the Jizz Whalin' Ya Doggies. My God. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to dig it up and take a picture of it for you. But uh, after that, I saw him uh, the following year, and at his table it said $15 per auto, <laughs> per photo. Yeah. Because <laughs> someone probably was like, what the hell are you doing, you know? Yeah. You're losing all this money. And, I, and I, I mean, I felt bad for the guy. I think I actually probably gave, I got another picture, and then I gave him more than I was supposed to. I think I did don't remember you're such Anyways, a stand-up kid i try i try because i felt bad i'm like oh my god i totally just took i literally took like six pictures uh, i i should pull all those out and show you too anyways this movie uh like i would dream about this movie i would think about this movie i would draw about this movie i would in my role-playing marvel game i created a character that was based around a fusion of mike and reggie put and uh jack death from tracers trancers sorry from trancers and um just obsessed with phantasm 2 it was like like it was like my go-to action movie always to watch so i love this movie and i think that if i saw this one when i was around that age maybe 11 or 12 i think it would have stuck with me stronger i think i saw phantasm 1 um was kind of like you know i don't know what i thought as a kid it just didn't click it just didn't click with me um looking back on it now i i always kind of forget there's a massive gap time wise between 1 and 2 whereas 1 is technically a 70s horror film and and then part 2 is an 80s horror film i always think of phantasm as being just an 80s horror franchise but that's not actually true um but yeah i can see it dude i can see it with the the four-barreled shotgun the awesome car the the fun quips back and forth the chemistry with james legro and and reggie bannister is fan fucking tastic in this um yeah I, i can see why this one really really stuck with you yeah, you know, and, and, and you mentioned that Phantasm 1 is a 70s movie. It came out in 79, so it's right on the cusp. Great year for movies, Phantasm and The Warriors, for yeah. example. Yeah, and um, 79 still has that 70s look, like, because even in 80 and 81, you're still getting that sort of 70s vibes and everything. Yeah, because they probably filmed it in, like, 78, you yeah. know? So I love the fact that this picks up eight years later uh or nine years later right we'll talk about that and it's it's like perfectly timed out um you know michael looks age appropriate he looks like a 19 year old kid in this and i think brad pitt actually was originally potentially up for the role of as michael so who who would have thought and if you go to james legros uh imdb page he like even mentions the fact that he's not Brad Pitt in his little bio or whoever wrote that form. It's very like tongue in cheek and it's entertaining actually. It's yeah. like who reads this stuff, right? Um, yeah, but but this movie, you know, was backed by Universal, so it's a big bigger budget and it shows what Coscarelli can do with a bigger budget, but he maintains the integrity of the original in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, cuz I mean, obviously um I think he had 3 million dollars for this from Universal. Um the reason this got so or the, first off, the reason it got greenlit and then sort of promoted and helped was the the president of Universal at the time was a big horror fan. Um and and he's the same guy who greenlit Army of Darkness and whatnot. So, we got a lot of good horror movies from Universal at this time, but also with that stipulation was they had to 
audition reggie banister and a michael baldwin had to re-audition for the roles because both of them had been out of acting for so long and i think don coscarelli and this is based on the documentary that i watched on the shot factory blu-ray he kind of regrets you know he i mean he loves james legras and and the the chemistry was great and i think it i think part two works out really well but i think he does regret not having a michael baldwin in there and he just the studio i don't think was ever really gonna let him use a michael baldwin i think uh that 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 audition was just like a hollow courtesy. Yeah. No offense to a Michael Baldwin, but it doesn't like James Legros looks like a leading man. No offense to a Michael Baldwin. I don't like his face. I like <laughs> James Legros. And no offense to all those phantasm fans out there that love him because yeah, that's fine. You can love people. Uh, but we don't love yeah. him the same way. We don't love him the same way. <laughs> yeah, that's, we love him okay. like a brother, not a boyfriend. How there you that? go. And I um, do want to insert an interesting little tidbit of information please. that I don't know where to put it in our breakdown, so I'll just throw it out here. But um, there's an implication that uh, some of the designs of these of the balls in in this movie and sort of the extra appendages and things that they can do um, were heavily inspired by a Philip K. Dick story called Second Variety. Now, that might sound familiar to our listeners because it's the story that the movie Screamers was based off of the movie that we reviewed. um, I believe it was in season two. Um, yeah, it wasn't season three. I think it was season two. And so, yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And Don Coscarelli is a massive Philip K. Dick fan. So, of course, he would probably be aware of Second Variety. So that was I was like, oh, wow, I, I was not expecting a Screamers connection here. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. And it totally makes sense. And Coscarelli, um, you know, he, he takes from from popular books and novels. Like John dies at the end is based on a book. Bubba yeah. Hotep's based on a book, so uh, oh, is you know, is Bubba Hotep a book? I didn't I didn't know that. I believe it is. I'm gonna fact check that really quick. Yeah, while you're doing that, I highly recommend uh, John Dies at the end the book. Uh, very good and a great compendium piece to the movie because it'll flesh out some areas. But the movie itself is still a, a great standalone uh, entry level into the John Dies at the end mythos. Yes, yes, and and Bubba Hotep was written by Joe R. Lansdale. Okay, it's a short story. So, Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah, but uh, speaking of Don Coscarelli, he's the one that wrote and directed this movie. Um, God, he's amazing. God, he's amazing man. He's an amazing man. We already <laughs> kind of talked about. We already touched on his movies, so there's nothing. Not, so there's nothing more to discuss in that regard. Yeah, especially if one day we're going to tackle his complete filmography. Um, I, I'd rather save it for that. But yeah, dude, I, I love this dude from what I've seen, and it's not as not nearly as much as you. And I am really hoping that we tackle him next. Yeah, I hope so, too. Um, I, I was just going to mention Fred Myro is the composer of this movie who did the original Phantasm theme. And he also uh, was one of the composers for Soylent Green. Wow. Passed away in 99. And I actually like the music in this movie. I like the the like the theme, the, the whatever is playing at the yeah it's playing like the menu screen on on the the blu-ray i like i love that shit man yeah yeah and the other composer is christopher stone uh who worked on from beyond he was an additional he added additional music to that 
So I think that's important to notice. To I think that's important to note. I think the only thing lacking from this movie, in my opinion, is a moment where Reggie gets to play guitar with mm. Bill Thornbury, who played Jody in the original one. Right. Because that's probably my favorite moment in Phantasm 1. Um, they didn't get a chance to do that because, spoiler alert, Jody dies in a car wreck. So, allegedly, wink, yeah. wink. Yeah. Because he comes cast, back in part yeah. three, right? Jody does? He does come back in part three. Um, yeah. Uh, I had mixed feelings about the the Phantasm franchise because it was so, could have gone in so many different directions. Uh, so we will cover all that when we cover Coscarelli. But yeah, the Phantasm franchise, I don't think... I don't think you could say it's successful because... The films did not, uh, I think Ravager is like a, it, it's it's a very like last ditch effort to, to kind of close the door on the franchise. And I don't think it does it in the best way. I, I mean, look, you know, who am I to say? I know these things happen. Uh, at one point, Roger Avery was tapped to, he wrote like a, a, uh, a sequel to phantasm i think that might have been rab it was supposed to be part four uh there was a comic book that came out that didn't do very well i think it's kind of an underground somewhat indie franchise in the in the overall like freddy jason leatherface genre you know yeah i mean if you asked your you're probably your layman back then um all of them know freddy and jason michael myers phantasm was definitely for the hardcore horror fans you know they, they might be like oh that movie with that tall old guy and the the metal ball that's probably all they remember about it and yeah i think even now i think you're right looking back and i i've never seen ravager but i've never heard a single good thing about it and i think that just the brand itself just i don't know how how like the i think it's got too many tarnishes on it now you know what i mean unfortunately yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when we get to the end of the breakdown, we'll discuss the cliffhanger ending. Um, it's just one of those things. It's like the Carpenter thing where, you know, yeah, would I like to see sequels to some of his movies? Sure. But is it fine that they are standalone movies? Yes. Yeah. Is it fine that Phantasm 1 and 2 for me? Uh, and I'm OK with that. Phantasm 3 is fine, too. Um I think maybe they just should have ended it as a trilogy, but, you know. And, and you know, we're talking about standalone movies. Um, I do want to say that even though I have seen Phantasm 1, um, I did not watch it before watching this. Uh, Zach and I sort of talked offline about it, and Zach suggested, you know what, why don't you, you know, because the, the beginning of it has does a great sort of recap and everything. He's like, watch it without watching part one. I was like, that's a good idea. I'll see how well it sort of holds up and how I can follow it, how well I can follow it without having recently watched part one. And I got to say, it's it does a great job as a standalone little horror film. You know, the the beginning, you, you learn what you need to learn. And, you know, if, if this is the first time you're watching the whole series and you start with this, Great. You can always go back and watch part one later, you know, if you want yeah. to. But I don't think you'll be lost at all watching part two to start with. No, I don't think you are at all. I think it's I think it's a fine standalone film, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, um. So as far as the as far as the cast is concerned, we pretty much talked about James LaGrosse. You know, I think a lot of people will recognize him from Drugstore Cowboy, uh, Point Break. He was on funny episodes of 
he was on a funny episode of Friends. He's a uh, a very talented kind of indie actor. He's done a lot of mainstream stuff, but he's also done a lot of indie films as well. Yeah, and I just want to shout out, uh, he had a great little character arc on uh, Justified. I can't remember what season it was. I think it was like season two or something. But yeah, he had a great little moment. You know, it wasn't anything major, maybe just a couple episodes, but I, I enjoyed him on there. Never watched that show. I'll just have to add it to my list. I won't make you watch it because I, at this day and age, we all have our infinite lists that are infinite cues, you know. I won't watch it, but it, but it will be on my list. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Reggie uh, Bannister, I mean, come on. It's like he's the Reg Man. If you don't know him from Phantasm, then you probably don't know him at all because besides Phantasm, well, you know, wasn't there, um, there was Phantasm Oblivion, which was part four. Then there was Pan- then there was Phantasm Ravager, which was the fifth one. Yeah. There's five in the series. Yeah. Probably should have ended after three, but we'll I... talk about that another time. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, like, every other movie, if it's not a Phantasm film, it all looks like straight-to-DVD generic horror films that he's... I mean, he works a ton, but it's nothing... There's nothing jumps out that that I really notice other than I mean, he was in Bubba Hotep. Obviously, Coscarelli's going to, you know, keep using him and everything. But yeah, you know, it's yeah, he's been in, you know, I think he's been in most of uh, Coscarelli's films going back to Jim, the world's greatest. I think that was Coscarelli's first movie in 75. He's he's semi I think he's retired at this point. Um, I know he's. He's uh, physically not doing as well as he as he was once uh, was, um, no. but the man is much older. He's still married to the same woman, Gigi Bannister, uh, who kind of handles his his duties, uh, his day to day stuff. But he still shows up for appearances and whatnot. And God, he's just a. I only have nothing, but I won't. I only have positive things to say about the guy. He's a great yeah. guy. Uh, Angus Scrim has yeah. also mostly done. Coscarelli films, although he has done other films as well. Uh, and, and I, well, one of them briefly was uh, Chopping Mall, right? Had a yeah, little yeah. appearance in there. <laughs> quick quick uh, appearance. Angus, Didn't even get a close up. <laughs> no, unfortunately. He's the tall man. He's mostly known for the tall man. He did a uh, rendition of The Raven, a live rendition of The Raven at a Fangoria convention once, just like picked up the mic and started going into the whole raven speech which was pretty amazing nice um the, the, he passed away in 2016 at the age of 89 yep. so as you all know that's a good run that's a great run paula irvine has not been in a lot of stuff this is probably her biggest role she reprises it in phantasm 3 we won't talk about that too much but she did a lot of television on uh, kind of tapped out in the mid 90s yeah yeah, a lot of, you know, 90210, Santa Barbara, Growing Pains, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone who went on to a larger, quote-unquote, career <laughs> was Samantha Phillips, who plays uh, Alchemy or Kemi. She did a lot of uh, skin flicks yes. for Cinemax and Showtime late night and then did, like, talk shows, had her own talk show, sex talk show, um, and, like, got – Got breast implants, and I think got them removed. Talked about the horrors of breast implants. So 
She's a wild, she's a wild child. Yeah, she she talks about that on on the interview and and whatnot. She said she's had seven breast surgeries or augmentations or whatever, and she was like, "But that's a conversation for another day." I'm like, "Yeah, I think so." I met her at a convention. They did a like a mini reunion at one of the Fan- Fangoria conventions. Uh, very sweet person, very nice, very personable, and nothing but nice things to say about her too and i want to call out really quick that uh, you know the movie in the movie her character's name is alchemy um if you look up alchemy uh it is the medieval forerunner of chemistry based on the supposed transformation of matter which is kind of appropriate for her whether she's alive or not the transformation of matter and everything you know when i heard her name was was alchemy and of course this is also part of like occult sciences and stuff like that i was like don coscarelli is making a very loud statement with this character oh yeah he sure is probably compounded with a lot of weed and acid too (laughs) exactly Kenneth Tigar, probably the most well-known at the time, uh, plays Father Myers. Kenneth Tigar, I remember him from just one of the guys, but he's been in, he's just one of those character actors who's done a ton of movies. And he always stands out to me in in the original Avengers movie, the very first Avengers, when Loki comes down and, and tells everyone to kneel, he's the one that stays standing and is like, you know, someone once told other people to kneel, you know what I mean? And I was always like, that's the guy, I think that guy's from Phantasm too. <laughs> When I, I first think he got saw his it. ear sliced off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now every time I see Avengers, which is a movie I fucking love, every yeah. time I see him, I'm like, that, that guy. <laughs> it's the, he's also, he plays the, um, the, 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 like the head of the school newspaper and just one of the guys who gives Terry her, her job, you know, to go undercut. Well, so he doesn't give her the, the job she wants. That's why she goes undercover and writes this story being a guy yeah. go watch just one of the guys as well of course one um, of your favorite movies i know it sure is so a couple of little uh character actors that i want to shout out j patrick mcnamara who plays a psychologist he's in it for you know a cup of coffee like 30 seconds of the movie that's uh bill s preston's dad oh. in bill and ted's <laughs> excellent adventures there you go okay all right uh stacy travis who plays uh liz's sister jerry yeah i was go- of, hoping you'd call her out because i definitely recognized her yeah i recognized her from only the strong uh, the capoeira the capoeira martial arts movie okay uh, that came out in the 90s uh, but she's been in she's actually been in a ton of stuff works to this day yeah she does and i always know her she had like a small little side role in uh the league uh that i always sort of that's where i sort of recognize her from but yeah dude she's in everything from like easy a to modern family to you know like i just said the league and everything even up till now she's like working on that show swat and everything so yeah she's constantly working yeah, yeah. I just wanted to call those two out. Yeah, you know, the 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 actor that plays grandma, the actor that plays grandpa, actor that plays one of the morticians. It's it's nothing to go gaga over. Yeah. Um, you know, we will uh they 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 play fine roles in this, but you know, we don't necessarily need to shout them out. Yeah. Now, everyone does a great job in this, but the cast, it's not a very big cast and the world feels very empty, which I love. This Ditto. movie is a 
world builders dream come true and in me being like i love trying to figure out what's going on around that corner you know or what's going on the day before all this shit was happening this movie in this series is so ripe and open for world building that it's a wet dream dude i love it yeah i totally agree um before we start with the breakdown i just want to quickly also recognize the the locations um because i think this film is just ripe with really interesting areas if you go to imdb they list all the locations where they shot this thing but it's all over california none of it's in oregon i was gonna say it's not oregon at all (laughs) no uh they filmed it all over the valley chatsworth hawthorne uh, Valencia, you know, like great, but there's some great kind of scenic shots of these long stretching highways. That's all Los Angeles. Yeah. But that's all Southern California. Yeah. And it still gives me when I see shots like that, when they're driving around and stuff, I love it. But it always gives me like Night Rider vibes because those are all the roads they would be driving down on Night Rider and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, as a kid growing up, I'm like, I want to go there. Well, you grew up, you were a lot closer to it than I was when you were up in the Bay Area. That's true. All I wanted to, my parents are like, do you want to go to Disneyland? I'm like, no, I want to go see where they shot Phantasm 2. <laughs> Phantasm 2, yeah. Um, but let's just get into Phantasm 2. Uh, well, tall man, you want to you give us the sign? Sure, boy. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind, a phantom, a spirit, a ghost. For 10 years, the secret of Paragord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now, three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. We've got to warn people. This summer, the ball is back. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. It's a dream. No, it's not. Rated R. All right, so Phantasm 2 opens with the Universal Studios logo. Universal Studios! Um, (laughs) And then moves into a sick... Sick Phantasm 2 logo. Oh, yeah. One of the best title cards that we've seen thus far in four years of doing podcasting after dark. This is probably one of the top five best title cards. Totally agree. And it's almost like Coscarelli's way of saying, oh, yeah, they gave me more money. I have a budget now, guys. (laughs) Look at me. I not only am going to improve upon the original, but I'm going to show I'm like injected with HGH is what he does. So the movie opens with a young woman, uh, Liz. She goes into her kitchen and she checks her valves for her uh, gas stove, makes sure they're off. She goes back into her bedroom and she opens up like a notebook. 
inside the notebook, it says psychotherapy patient. Uh, please make a detailed rec record of your dreams on a nightly basis. Notes will be useful in consultation with therapist. She's f going through the pages of her notebook and she's starting to have a flashback. You, you see the flashback to the original phantasm where Mike and Reggie are sitting by a fire and Mike is crying and Reggie is consoling him. And Mike says, you know, first he took mom and dad, then he took Jody. Now he's after me. And Reggie's like, Mike, that tall man of yours didn't take Jody away. Jody died in a car wreck, which is very interesting because the original Phantasm, if you've seen it, you know that Reggie has had major moments inside the mortuary, inside with the portal. Uh, he's the one that deactivates the portal, and he's just blocked it all out. Right. Which is makes sense. It's I mean to me that's a that's a coping mechanism. To be honest with you, true, true, true. Um, yeah, tear goes down Mike's face, and Reggie's like, you know, you just you just had a nightmare, and Mike's like, it seems so real, and Reggie tries to distract him by saying, you know what, partner, what we need is a change of scenery. And Mike's like, where will we go? He goes, well, we'll figure that out when we get there. And Mike smiles. It's like a really candid, sweet moment. And then Reggie says, well, go on upstairs and get your gear together because we leave when the sun comes up. And he grabs his guitar and he strings a strings just one note on the guitar. And then it flashes back to Liz talking about how, again, her notes like she's basically seeing she Mike has psychically sent her all these messages throughout the years. They have this psychic connection, which we'll find. Well, we're finding out right now. Yeah, no, and, and this is all the end of Phantasm 1, correct? But yes. then plus. So, like, it goes past the end of the original movie with these flashbacks, and we get to see what happens after. And I love this this concept, this idea of, of us getting a recap from her dream journal. But at the same time, I also like the idea of her and Mike being connected psychically. I got no beef with that whatsoever, you know? Yeah, it's a great way to open because immediately you're like, well, who's this woman? And then right after that, you're thrust back into you're thrust back into the original film through these flashbacks, which are which are the actual scenes from the original film up until a point, and I'll note those as well. It's a really cool transition, and it feels pretty natural too, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, I honestly, watching it twice, I couldn't tell where, like, you know, the eight-year gap was. And I know that Reggie Bannister dyed his hair to kind of match it, but honestly, he aged great because it looked pretty accurate to me, you know? Yeah, totally agree, totally agree. So Liz talks about, she mentions Mike and Reggie, but then she says, I, I also found him, the tall man. And then from there, you cut back to, this is going back from Liz's journal Back to scenes in the original movie. You cut back to the flashback in 79 and the tall man pulls up in a hearse in front of Reggie's house and he's opening up. Uh, he gets out of the hearse, opens up the trunk of the hearse and pulls out a coffin. And I love all the art in her dream journal too. It's fantastic. And they use the art to transition from uh, A. Michael Baldwin to uh, James Legros uh, uh, at the end of this. And I think that is just fantastic using these like pencil sketches 
the artist is great, kind of just morphing and, and slowly, you know, goes from a Michael Baldwin, and then all of a sudden it becomes James Legros, you know? Yeah, it's it's also, I think it's a great way, you know, they, they recast people all the time in movies, right? And I think this has been a long enough gap where it's not jarring. And they do it in a way where it's like, okay, well, this is what he looks like now. Yeah. He went from that awkward little teen or tween to this beautiful young man. And, and it helps because the artwork shows it as well. Because, it, you know, even though they had to make new artwork, they made it look like a Michael Baldwin. And then they make it look like James Legros at the end. Yep. So they cut from the tall man. You cut to Mike in his bedroom, packing up a duffel bag and getting his gear ready. Pulls out a picture of Jody. Uh, Jody's holding a guitar and a little toy dog laying on the couch. It's a very odd photo. Yeah. But it's the only photo he's got. And it's really sweet because you're like, oh, this is. His brother's gone, you know. If you've seen the original, you know how badass his brother was. He inherited the car, the Hemikuta that we'll find out uh, in a few minutes. That's Jody's car. Okay, okay. Uh, from there, so so Michael is uh, packing up his gear. He's raped by a closet door. He closes the closet door with a mirror on it, and the mirror is reflecting the wall behind him. And who's standing behind Michael in the corner of his room, but the tall man. Michael's shocked, turns around, and all the tall man does is look at him and say, Boy! Right after that, two hands crash through the mirror the, the, of his closet and pull him through the mirror of the dwarves, the little Jawa dwarves. And correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, that's the last shot of the original movie, right? Was him getting sucked through the window. You, you don't see Reggie anymore. Like, that was the last shot, right? That's how the original movie ended, Okay, which is such a great way to end a movie. And again, if that was the standalone horror film that Phantasm was, that would have been fine. But now we get the 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 little kid dream what happens next we're about to find out what happens next and i love this trope i love movies that do this where they pick up right after the first movie and a lot of them like you know with like karate kid part two or something like you you see what happens at the end but this really changes the impact of the first movie because it kind of you know it goes a little bit past i i love these things i love how they're doing this i love this kind of thing it's it's like right up my alley dude yeah, I actually that's I'm glad you brought up Karate Kid because I feel like there's other movies that do it, but I always thought the Karate Kid series did a really nice job of transitioning uh, you know, from the the orig- recapping and then moving into the next one. This one recaps and then continues that same time frame. So yeah. so it's that same night. And so it's almost like a it's almost like a director's cut of the first movie, like this first 8 minutes or so. Pretty much, because after that crash scene happens, Reggie, who's still playing his guitar downstairs, hears it, gets startled by it, puts the guitar down, rushes down the hallway to see what's going on to Mike's bed to Mike's bedroom, and he stops midway because he sees the tall man, and he sees a small dwarf pulling on Mike. Reggie freaks out, goes back down the staircase to grab a shotgun that's above the fireplace. And when he checks the shotgun, he realizes that it's empty. He runs into the kitchen and starts searching cabinets for ammo. 
suddenly he opens one door and a dwarf lunges out at him and starts trying to attack his face. It's great. It's dwarf's a monster looking piece of shit. Love it. Killer makeup too. Killer special effects. At some point we'll call out who did the special effects for this film. Yeah, I'll I'll pull it up and by the time you're done I'll I'll have it ready. So Reggie uh, wrestles with the dwarf, shakes him off onto the ground, and beats the dwarf with the shotgun, the back end of the shotgun, and to the point where it's he like hits it maybe 10, 15 times. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of shakes it off. He goes back to looking for ammo. When that happens, he turns around and he sees more hooded dwarves all around him. That's a great shot too. I like that. After that happens, he realizes, I think, I think at this point he realizes there's nothing else that he's going to be able to do. He notices the fire in the fireplace, the gas stove behind him. He puts out the pilot lights to the gas stove with, with his thumb. I'll never forget that, that he just kind of extinguishes them quickly with his thumb. Yeah. And kind of vaults over like some of the, uh, the, the island in the kitchen. Uh, to get away from the dwarves and he goes into the um the laundry chute uh like the what do you call it the service chute oh for... yeah it's like a, it's the laundry it's i thought it was gonna be a dumb waiter at first but yeah no it, it's it's the like the laundry chute or whatever yeah and starts crawling up that away from the dwarves to get to the top yeah and so real quick the dwarf makeup effects and all the other effects, except for the balls. That was done by a different guy. But the uh, the head of the makeup uh, department was uh, Mark Shostrom. Um, and what was amazing, and he 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 himself is is a is a world class you know effects artist. You know he worked on uh, he came he was coming right off of Evil Dead two, but he did oh. Nightmare on Elm Street three. He did From Beyond, Phantasm two. He's done some monsters episodes. Um, but on his team was Greg Nicotero. Uh, so Greg Nicotero also worked on this. So, so they, uh, and also the N in K and B, uh, effects. Uh, so it was the, uh, the N for Nicotero. And then I think it was the K, but I can't remember who the K was. So two thirds of K and B, uh, Kurtz, not Kurtzman. Yeah. I think it was Kurtzman or something. Yeah. Um, uh, was also working under him, but, uh, the, the other guy was the main one though. Okay, cool. And then Berger, I think, is the last Berger or something. Yeah, Berger, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but all, cool. everyone who Greg worked, on, I mean, too. this was a who's who. Uh, like, at, maybe not even at the time they weren't, but they went on. Every one of them went on to be world class uh, effects artists, and that's awesome. why the effects look so damn good in this movie. So good, so good. Reggie scurries up the dumbwaiter laundry chute up to the top level, crawls out before the dwarves can get him, closes it and locks it. He goes out into the hallway, stops and notices the tall man walking out of Mike's room and then goes back to a cabinet, opens the cabinet up, pulls out a baseball bat and a tennis racket and decides to leave the tennis racket. This movie's great with uh, facial expressions because he kind of gives this look like, what am I going to do? This sucks. I'm going to use this baseball bat. Yeah, like Phantasm 2 isn't as comedic as other horror comedies, but it definitely has a strong comedy element to it. And I think Reggie kind of inhabits most of it. I actually think, and, and it's a difference between this one and part three, because part three is much more comedic. I think this one perfectly skates that line of dramatic and comedic because 
it doesn't do it too much where you're not scared anymore. If it's if it does it too much, it's not it's not scary. The first Evil Dead is so it has its moments where it's very scary. Evil Dead Two not really scary because the whole thing's just silly. Right? Yeah, and then Army Which, of Darkness not scary at all. Not scary at all, and that's fine. It's just two different kind of movies. Anyways, um, Reggie ditches the tennis racket, the Jim the James Cornette tennis racket, <laughs> and takes the baseball bat. Walks into the hallway, sees the dwarf, uh, sees the dwarf dragging Mike down the hallway, and cracks the shit out of the dwarf with the baseball bat. And at this point, we have to note that it's not a Michael Baldwin. It is a body double. It is a female body double. It is someone, an actress that we have actually discussed before on our show uh, in the movie The New Kids. It is Lori Laughlin. Wow. Who in 1988 or 1987, whenever they filmed this, was kind of a, like, she had established herself at this point. This kind of, in my mind, this kind of brings, it's like, there's so many weird roles that we don't see in Hollywood. Like, I should say, there's so many weird jobs in Hollywood for actors um, that you never even see or even think about, but sometimes they have to work and make money. Some actors will actually just be hired to read lines for somebody in a, in a movie, like to read off of somebody, even though they're not up for the role, they're just being an actor reading lines for other people auditioning for the other role. An example of this was that in the original Star Wars, Harrison Ford was doing all the Han Solo stuff, but he wasn't like auditioning they just hired him to read the Han Solo lines for all the people that were you know coming in as Luke and all the people that are coming in as Carrie Fisher but over time that turned out to be Harrison Ford's essentially his audition they're like well you got the role but he was originally hired just to read the lines so you know for her it's probably like well hey you know you can do this body double thing it'll be one weekend and you'll make x amount of dollars you know what I mean so it was shocking to me, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of work in Hollywood that we don't see, you know, and, and that actors do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And she she does it well. She does a damn good job of looking like an 11-year-old child. Yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> um, Reggie grabs Mike and starts to head back downstairs, and then they realize there's like, you know, it's not this many, but like 20 dwarves coming up the stairs practically. And they're screwed. What's he going to do? Uh, time is ticking on the gas with the with the fireplace getting close. You see a, a, a reminder of that. Uh, and Reggie grabs Mike and he rushes out Mike's window, out the window, the second story of the house, crashing down to the ground. They run away from the house and the house explodes. And when it does... Reggie holds Mike down, to, tells him to stay down, says it's okay. You cut to the tall man watching the blaze go up and closes the casket and the uh, trunk of the hearse and gets in the car to leave. And, dude, so this is an amazing explosion. So they blew up a house. They really blew up a house um, that was uh, it was on the, um, the, the path of the 105. Um, that they were the so basically it was in the movie suburbia all those houses were also going to be demolished i believe for the 105 as well so this is essentially one of those houses they all they did was build a second story onto it to make it match the original house now 
they had to they had the explosion since it's so close to the airport they had to time it they had a 10 minute window where there were no planes flying in the basically in the flight path they could not blow it up with planes flying over so they had to wait and it gets even cooler they had they filmed three shots they filmed the Reggie with Lori Laughlin as young A. Michael Baldwin. They filmed the same. So, and on the other side of the house, they had the tall man walking to the, the car. So that is the same explosion as the one that, that Reggie and A. Michael Baldwin or Lori Laughlin are hanging out by. And it's also the same explosion that James LeGros and Reggie see in the car. But the way it, that shot, James LeGros was sitting next to a, 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 a Reggie double. So that so Reggie's house that explodes later is the same house that explodes right here, and all three of those shots were done at the exact same time. So James Legros and the Reggie double were in the the Hemikuda over to the right. Uh, Reggie Bannister and Lori Laughlin were in the middle, and then the tall man was getting his shot over on the left, and they were all being shot at the same time with the same one house exploding. That That's is crazy. amazing. That's so amazing. So impressive. And I mean, and Don Coscarelli, when he was talking about it, he had a smile on his face. He's like, this is really the biggest thing we did in this movie. And I, if I were him, I'd be proud of that too. I mean, he got three shots. He got three shots perfectly. And by the way, the one of uh, Angus Scrim kind of slowly walking and looking, that's the coolest one. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. And that, that explosion is epic. Yeah. And it's a huge fucking explosion. So it's a great explosion. Well, he should be champion for that. And also the fact that, um, the car crash that they have at the end is one of the best car crashes I've seen in a long time as well. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that one too. Cause yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an expensive car that they, well, they found a junker version, but still, <laughs> I think even that junker version was kind of expensive. Totally. I I meant to mention this at the opening of the episode as well. So when the movie does open and Liz's eyes open and then she gets up to go check the gas on on her stove uh, and she opens up her notebook, that's when she mentions that it's eight years ago that her visions began. So her visions began the moment this all went down, basically. And, And so my question to you is, was Mike psychic in the first movie or is that something they completely added to this one? Well, there there is a weird psychic kind or supernatural element in the first Phantasm when he he meets uh, Michael, goes and visits his friend, whose like grandmother is a is a is a like a fortune teller, okay, or like a, a, a truth seeker, truth sayer, like truth, truth sayer, yeah, yeah, and he puts his hand in this box, and he can't get his hand out of the box, and there's like supernatural elements, so. This movie has already established itself. This this franchise has already established itself as being supernatural. Something that we can't explain just happens. And they don't really talk about that. They don't talk about this how they get this psychic connection. But I guess we're to believe through the trauma. I'm I'm this is my world building. Through the trauma, he unlocks this ability. Okay. okay. Which doesn't get played up all that often, if you think about it. You'd think he'd be able to find her a lot faster if he had a stronger link. But anyways, uh, but yeah, through this series of events, this is how Liz was able to find Mike and Reggie. Cutting back to Liz with her voiceover, looking at pages from the sketchbook, 
she sees the picture of young Mike in her sketchbook. And then she talks about how uh, she doesn't know where the tall man comes from. Maybe another dimension. She's turning pictures of the different creatures that kind of the tall man uh, commands. There's sketches in her book of the the little Jawa dwarves. There's uh, guys with gas masks, guys with gas masks on, which will come into play later on in the movie. Uh, her voiceover continues. He talks. She talks about how the tall man destroys towns and plunders them. There's the shot of the cemeteries being empty. Uh, she says he feels him coming closer. She knows that he sees her. She and Mike both know what he can do. And then she says, you know, Mike, we've grown up together. I don't even know if you're real. But there's a picture now of older Mike with hearts around him and his name <laughs> written out. Then you cut to a scene of Mike running in the mausoleum from the original movie. This is like out of kind of out of the 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 this is out of sync with the whole timeline. But it just shows like an example of the the sphere. And it cuts back to a scene where Mike is in the mausoleum. It's I think it's like midway, three quarters of the way through the original Phantasm, where Mike is being chased by the the Silver Sphere. I think they just sh- wanted to show that just to like identify, just just to remind the audience of like some of the shit that the Tall Man can do. Yeah, and I think there's a yeah you need to show the sphere no matter what. Yeah, and she continues her narration. She says, "And now my dreams have returned." Soon my grandfather will die and my visions will become real. And she starts saying, please help me, Mike. And do you see a picture of her uh, grandpa and grandmother? And you cut to her grandfather on a mortuary table having his mouth stitched up. Yeah, that's Which I'm like, oh, is that how they keep the mouth? Like they stitch it up and then they cut the stitches afterwards to keep the mouth closed? I guess so, yeah. And that's when she's staring at the picture of the new Mike. And she's like, I need you, Mike. Mike, help me. Help me, Mike. Help me. I know you're out there. And then suddenly the new Mike's eyes open up. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Pretty much. And and now we see 19-year-old Mike sitting up in bed in a hospital. He's at the Morningside Psychiatric Clinic. He's looking handsome and rugged, right? Like a buff 19-year-old. I think this was... Uh, James Legros first uh, starring role too so oh yeah he's, yeah he's looking looking stacked and then from there Mike's in therapy talking to his psychiatrist or his, so, talking to his therapist Mr. Preston yes Bill as Preston's dad who's you know having sex with uh, Missy yeah I mean mom <laughs> I'm Missy I mean mom so Mike is talking to the therapist saying, I guess you could say that I really went off the deep end. I, I got to the point where I couldn't distinguish between reality and fantasy. And then you hear a voiceover in his mind saying, that's good. Keep it up. And I got to say, the voiceover stuff, it's not done a lot in this movie, but it's better than David Lynch's Dune. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on to say, I don't blame Reg. What could he have done? The dreams took hold of me. And then the voiceover says, just tell him what he wants to hear. And Mike says, I'm looking forward to moving on with my life. And and then the voiceover says, I got to get out of here. She needs me. Cut to the therapist saying, it's been a tough seven years, but you've come a long way. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's the dad from Bill and Ted's. (laughs) 
and goes, be well, Michael. And remember, it was all in your imagination. And Michael gets up, and as he's walking out of the therapist's office, he goes, like, fuck it was. <laughs> and I love that. I love that he says that. Like, no, fuck no. Because you immediately cut to the next scene, which is at a cemetery, the Morningside Graveyard. <laughs> it definitely looks like an L.A. cemetery. It's way too big. <laughs> yeah, it's so big. And Mike is in a grave with a pickaxe. Mike raises the pickaxe to swing and someone grabs it. Mike turns around and it is Regman. <laughs> and he says, I was afraid I'd find you here. Come on, Mike, get up out of there. And immediately, like, Mike doesn't say, hey, how are you or whatever. I haven't seen you in seven or eight years. He goes, this whole place is empty. Reggie's like, yeah, so uh, come on, let's, let's go home. <laughs> Mike's like, look at this, goddammit. And he opens up one of the caskets and it's empty. And he says, this is the third one I've dug up. They're all empty. Isn't that strange that every goddamn corpse in this entire graveyard is missing? And Reggie's like, what do you want? What do you want from me? And Mike's like, I want to stop him. And Reggie goes, the tall man. Yeah, that story about me blowing up my house because it was infested with midgets. <laughs> he goes, your doc said it was your own delusions. And Mike goes, well, fuck the doctors and fuck you too if you won't help me. And Reg is like, God damn it, Mike, I'm trying to help you. What am I supposed to do? And that's and that's when I think like, I mean, I think in, in his core, Reggie knows what happened. It's buried he knows. in there. But, but I think he's also pushing it down. You know, I don't think those memories at first, like right here, are readily available to Reggie. I mean, they will be later, but I think he's just put so many blocks up at this point uh, to, to cope. It, it's all coping mechanisms. It's all you know? coping mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah, so Reggie's like, what am I supposed to do, right? And Mike's like, he's shown me things. He wants me to come to him. Reggie's like, why? And he goes, well, I'm not the only one. There's others. A girl. She's drawn to him, too. He's got to be stopped. And I'm going after him. And I know I can find him, but but to kill him, I need your help. And Reggie's like, shit, Mike, if they catch you here digging up graves, they'll put you away and never let you out again. He goes, come on, just, let's get out of here. We can talk it out. Later. We, we can talk it out at home. And see, this is... So once I realized that this is a horror adventure, I started looking at it from the hero's journey. Um, you know, your boy, the who's the quote that you love? What's his name? Oh, Joey Campbell. Yeah, exactly. So you know all about this shit. So right here, Reggie, and you know, I'll always use Star Wars as an example because it's a great example of the hero's journey. Reggie is you, you. The hero always turns down the call to adventure first, and this is Reggie turning down the call to adventure because because Michael already has his call to adventure. Michael's like Obi Wan, whereas Reggie's like Luke Skywalker, um, and it, and they'll have other reversals later, but they kind of play both of those roles here and there. But for the most part, yeah. it's Reggie that is following the hero's journey. So like Luke with the death of aunt Beru and uncle Owen, something catastrophic has to propel Reggie into this path. And we will see it in T minus a minute and a half. <laughs> we will. And I really want to, as you were saying this and talking about Reggie specifically, I just wanted to point out. So this is a big budget studio film for a movie. And it's a sequel eight years later to a movie that was super cult under the radar. 
And one of its main leads is a guy that mainstream audiences have never really ever seen before. It's one of their and, main leads is a middle-aged bald guy. Well, no, I'm saying like, yes, well, he's middle-aged bald guy who no one's ever seen, and, mainstream audience. And the other one is this young, new kid actor. And this movie is a summer movie. It came out in July. That is so badass. We'll never see that again, unfortunately. Yeah. No, no. But it, I just want to recognize that really quickly, how special this movie is. And again, that's another reason why I chose this movie. How special is that? Because that shit does, doesn't happen. No, no, it, it really doesn't. It, I mean, I think there were so many ways that this couldn't have happened that we're, we're lucky that the stars aligned and, and we got Phantasm too. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, from there you cut to the beautiful Hemikuda. Reggie's driving Michael back to his house. And Reggie's kind of going on about, you know, dinner's going to be there. So, he's talking about, like, dinner's there. His aunt Martha came down and Celeste baked a turkey. And, you know, his daughter Bonnie's just can't wait to meet her Uncle Mike. And I'm like, what time is this? Because it looks like it's midnight or 2 in the morning. But they're driving home like dinner's waiting for them. Yeah. is it supposed to, I think it's supposed to be seven or eight o'clock at night, but judging by when Mike got into the cemetery, it's like two or three in the morning. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. If you, if you analyze it a little bit too hard, you're like the, the timeline doesn't quite add up. What I actually enjoyed was you, we don't see Aunt Martha, we don't see I guess Reggie's wife or his daughter, um, but him talking about him so realistically like that, I'm like, oh, this so is real. such this is such an, a great economical way of, of filling us in that Reggie has this life and everything, and in two seconds, it's going to all be over with, but we never see any of them, and that's okay. It doesn't take away from the emotional impact when they all fucking explode. So they're about to, because unfortunately, well... Because fortunately or unfortunately, Mike has a psychic link to the tall man as well. And he hears, he sees the tall man say, welcome home, boy. As the other side of the screen, you see the gas stove in Reggie's house being turned on. Mike, immediately terrified, looks at Reg and says, we got to get the people out of your house. The gas is going to, and before he even finishes his statement, you see a shot from the car's perspective of the house. And it's the explosion again from the other point of view that Corey brought up earlier. The house blows up. And again, it doesn't look like the same explosion because it's from a different angle. It looks like a totally new explosion. Another beautiful house once again getting blown to smithereens. Reggie screams. They pull over. They get out of the car. Reggie's like, no, 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 no. We got to get him out. We got to get him out. Mike holds him down and... Reggie's whole family is dead. Just like that. Like sister, wife, daughter. Everything. Wow. Horrible. Wow. Hey, everybody. Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Have you been wondering where's the beef? Well, on our podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, you might just find that out, as well as some other things about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a nostalgic-based trivia show that pits two challengers head-to-head in a duel of the decades, with categories ranging from movies, TV and music, to slang, food, and fashion. You're sure to get the best in retro-themed trivia. 
So strap on your jelly shoes, grab a surge, and walk like an Egyptian to your favorite podcast app and check out Throwback Trivia Takedown. I heard even Mikey likes it. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal is a joke. (laughs) And now, back to the show. From there, you cut to the funeral at a cemetery. Pretty much everyone has left, except for Reggie, who's sitting down looking at the three coffins. Mike is standing behind him by a tree, comes up to him, puts his hand on his shoulder, tells him he's sorry. Reggie goes, you knew it before it happened. He goes, let's go, Mike. We got things to do. And you cut immediately to the Hemikuta driving off. And, you know, we don't linger, you know, on Reggie's emotions or anything like that. And that's okay. Because, again, this is an adventure. We don't, this isn't an emotional movie or anything like that. We're going to move past it. I mean, Luke, you know, was a little upset over Baru and uh, Uncle Owen for a little bit. But, you know, he moved on pretty, pretty fucking fast. If anything, he was probably a bit more torn up about Obi-Wan dying than he was about his aunt and uncle. But, like, in these type of movies, in this moment, we don't need it, man. It, it doesn't need to be that kind of movie. It does what it needs to do here. It frees Reggie of his responsibilities to, to society and stuff like that. And he can now move forward in this adventure. And uh, my only other note for this scene is James Legro looks so much cooler when his hair is slicked back. I agree, and I'm not going to lie, his look later on in the movie with the thermal underneath the t-shirt, mm. I rocked that look and slicked my hair back because I wanted to look just like him. <laughs> and I was doing it into well into the mid-90s, early Amen. 2000s. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, you're talking about the emotional kind of uh, arc that Reggie's going through. They kind of cover it in the narration, the voiceover of Reggie. Yeah. Uh, The music to Phantasm theme plays beautifully. And you see the Hemikuta driving from the the wheel. It's just a beautiful freaking car. It's a Plymouth Barracuda. Uh, I believe that Don Coscarelli may own one of the original cars. It's probably my favorite car of all time in any movie period and i mean supernatural is a direct homage to this oh right? big time yeah big time i don't think they've ever called that out and if they haven't they definitely should and all you supernatural fans out there chime in tell us what your thoughts are on that but reggie's narrating yeah so he i mean he's gone through we don't need to see him being torn up on the floor crying no we, we know that's probably gonna happen yeah that's, but, that's not uh, cool. That's not sexy, Jack. That's not sexy, Jack. And Reggie says, Mike didn't need to ask me anymore. I enlisted for the duration. He told me it might take us years to find the tall man, and if we did, we'd probably die. Well, maybe, but not without a fight. I love that. It's so yeah. fucking badass. And I, I like voiceovers like that, and I think it this does a great job. Like you said, it gives us what we need. It gives us over a cool driving montage and everything. This movie is so 
economical in the best ways possible. Like Don Coscarelli knows how to just draw out a budget, man. Really. So beautiful. So beautiful. And from there, you go from the driving montage to the shopping montage. And I love myself a good shopping montage. You cut to the hardware store where they break in, they grab a shopping cart, and they put these little uh, these little flashlights on the shopping cart. And Mike, with a big smile on his face, goes, let's go shopping. <laughs> and they start grabbing various tools, you know, digging tools, drills, shovels, all that shit. And uh, they walk over to uh, rifles on the wall. And Reggie pulls out a, a rifle, a, like a deer rifle. And Mike says, long guns are no good. If it's got to work, it's got to work at close range. And he pulls out a chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking chainsaw. Yeah. And by the way, those subtitles do not match what he says there. There are multiple subtitles that are completely wrong to what is being said on screen. I, yes, agreed. Because they're probably going off the original script, which is probably, you know. I, I, I don't know, because later on when, when Liz says to um mike she's like oh we're dreaming you know when he's like they're not talking the subtitle says we're chaining and i think that the person just fucked up the subtitle (laughs) is just fucked up true but otherwise i love this fucking scene here um i think it's really fucking cool mike gets the the you know the flamethrower they build like a flamethrower thing don coscarelli must love um welding masks because we see one pop up and john dies at the end is also and then uh, mike is wearing one a lot in this as well and of course reggie makes his like four four barreled shotgun and everything it's awesome dude yeah he takes two he takes two two barrel shotguns uh ties them together with like a with a with a with a metal strap uh creates a handle between the two of them and then saws them off kind of at angles. And I love how he checks the pipe to make sure that they're clean. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's like the A-team, it's the it's the R-rated version of the A-team. They're building their shit. They're building guns. They never build guns in the A-team, right? They, they It was always like, oh, or this industrial thing. Um, this is like, okay, what are we going to do to load up and kill monsters yeah it's a you've never seen like the only only other scene that i can think of that comes close is uh rudy building uh making his stakes in the monster squad yeah, yeah. that's about it you yeah know? And, and the silver bullets and whatnot yeah yeah the great scene and then it in this scene ends awesomely with reggie opening the fucking cash register seeing lots of cash and you're expecting him to grab it grab wads of it and he puts cash in there for what they've stolen because I, I don't know if this is annoying guys, but I'm going to keep coming back to it again. I think this is Don Coscarelli's like star Wars. There is no gray here. There is black and white. Yeah. These guys are the good guys. They are the Period. heroes and heroes don't steal. We need more fucking here. <laughs> black and white. Again. <laughs> yeah, we do. It's it's yeah. It shows the, the integrity. Yep. Yep. That word should be used more often with with heroes in movies having fucking integrity, not like, well, in a moment of weakness, I had sex with the bad guy's wife. No, just like fuck off, man. Make it good and 
good and bad. That's it. Well, and in talking about sort of like film language and stuff, uh, Aaron's movie Out of the Dark. Remember the the main guy who turns out to be sort of spoiler alert, the the bad guy. Remember he was yeah. like I I was like why is he I'm getting like sleazy vibes from him, but he's I'm, he's supposed to be the main guy. But that was the movie telling us like oh you know you're you're supposed to be cautious, be you weary be, of this yeah. guy. The Phantasm Two is straight up telling us. These are the good guys. These are the heroes. They are not gray. They are not bad at all. They are fucking good dudes. And not only are they good dudes, but they're brave as fuck because they're not running from the problem. They're tracking the problem. They're hunting it down. Where have you seen that in a genre movie where I feel like in the Michael Bay Friday the 13th movie, there's the one character that is hunting for Michael. Yeah. Or sorry, hunting J- for Jason. Jason. Yeah. Right. And I love that character, by the way. I think that's yeah. badass that the guy goes after Jason. Yeah. That's uh, kind of like this. That's kind of the more like this. If if this was a Friday Thirteenth movie, it would be them basically, yeah, hunting Jason Voorhees, like in that in that reboot. Yeah. Is as, as much as I love the Dream Warriors, they're kind of wimps. They kind of yeah. suck. They're yeah. not. They're not like me. I'm the boxer guy. Goo goo goo. And they get and they immediately get killed by Freddy. Yeah, you know? they, they even the wizard kid. I'm always like, you were so powerful, and then he still fucking dies. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of wish they'd always given Freddy a bit more of a workout. You know, how do they call him the Dream Warrior? They're not warriors. Yeah, I think that movie's a smidge overrated. Yes, unlike this movie. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, Reggie's narration continues. There was no use trying to tell anybody. They lock us up and throw away the key, which is perfect because yeah, because it's so fucking crazy. We spent a long time on the road, northwest mostly. It wasn't hard to pick up his trail. The places he'd been always looked the same. Small towns are like people. Some get old and die a natural death. Some are murdered. And you cut to them driving through a deserted kind of main street of a town. Buildings are boarded up. A car is on its side. I think they reused this same location later on for Paragord. They, they did, and and that's but it's fine. That's a okay in my book. But I, you got to carve out twenty minutes for me here to talk about what I love about this series. This is what I love about the Phantasm series. Not only is it a horror adventure film, but it's also a horror fairy tale, and I love. This idea that the Pacific Northwest can be littered with these dead towns. And you can't do that nowadays because too much social media and everything, we're all too connected. And we would never, we would all know if a town sort of disappeared like this. But in the 80s, you could do this. This is probably the last decade you could do something like this. But what it creates is this awesome, dreamlike, horror fairy tale uh, of this world that feels it's our world, but it's slightly off kilter. And I think what adds to that is outside of the therapist, you don't really meet anybody else that's not connected to the horrors of the story. You don't read any newspapers. You don't, they don't listen to the radio. They don't see any news broadcasts. So it feels very separated from the rest of society and thus it gives it like again gives it this fairy tale like quality that i've never seen in another horror series like this uh like this 
but when I watched the three or four, when I watched them back in the day, my biggest takeaway was how much I loved this idea of just dead towns, of stumbling upon these dead towns in a modern era. Because, you know, you think about that with, like, the Wild West, like a ghost town. But this is, like, you know, a quote-unquote current modern era. It's such a cool idea. I, I fucking, it just fills my mind with, like, so many, you know, ways to go and, like, what happened here and all this kind of stuff. I, I think it's so cool. I think it's so fucking cool. And to go back to what you were saying earlier about Coscarelli being smart about, you know, condensing time or, or packing. It, this is all also a great way to cut down on a large cast mm -hmm. and sets. Yep. Keep it very simple, but effective. Yes. Yes. Totally effective. Yeah. Because Reggie talks about how they have to be careful in these towns because sometimes the tall man sets traps for them. They pull into another cemetery. And this one's cool because this one's kind of real tiny. This is what I suspected. The, I, that's what I thought the other cemetery should have looked like, but I like this one. Yeah, they pull into the, the Meriton County Mortuary. Mike says we're too late. Reggie says let's get the tools and scope it out. And I love that. They go over to the trunk of the car to reveal all their weapons, and they start loading up. And they both look fucking awesome, like, suited up, you know, with, like, their armor and shit, you know? Yeah, Mike's got his uh, blowtorch and uh, helmet, and Reggie's got his crossed, uh, like, bullets and drill bits yep. to go along with his four-barrel shotgun. They walk up to the front door. Oh, sorry, I've got to point out one more accessory that Reggie puts on. He puts on his boogie down hat, which is the <laughs> coolest fucking hat, trucker hat on the planet. I would love a hat like that. I'm surprised you don't have a replica hat of that. I feel like his wife, Gigi, might be selling those, so I might have to reach out to her and see, because I need one of those hats. <laughs> Anyways, they go into this small little mortuary. They're walking through this empty graveyard, which is impressive, by the way. As they're walking through this graveyard with all these empty graves, it's so cool. Yeah, the the art designer, the production designer, just took a backhoe and dug out like twenty graves, but he only dug like a foot down, and then they put black tarps in there. And at night, with the shadows, it just looks like they were deeper, but they are only like a foot deep with black tarps. That's so cool. It's, yeah, it's that's a so. It's a great effect, and it looks amazing. Sure does. They get to the entrance of the mortuary. In the front of the mortuary, painted in, in red spray paint, are the words, burn in hell. Mike lights his torch. Reggie fires up his chainsaw, cuts an opening. Mike kicks open the door. They're armed and ready to go. They walk into the entry hall, and they see a bloody cross hanging uh, with chains hanging from it. It's really creepy. They start walking down the hallway. Reggie nods to Mike. He goes in one direction. Mike goes in the other. Mike walks into the casket room. Uh, and when he enters in there, he's scanning it and he sees a uh, dead body, a woman's naked body, corpse. It's Sam Phillips, by the way, uh, on the uh, like gurney table. Right? Yeah, yeah. And he, as he looks at her, he also goes over to the embalming liquids and he looks in one and you hear like something moving around in it, which is creepy. <laughs> I like that. Because there's I... an element to that too. There's some weird creatures that tend to pop up. Yeah. 
it's it's cool because he I like that you know maybe he maybe tall man doesn't leave things behind all the time but like the areas get infected by his dimension and yeah I noticed that when he looked in the embalming thing there's like a little you know like something in there moves and that just but you know Donnie C doesn't like you know zoom in on it or anything it just leaves it to your imagination you're like okay there's something in there that's wild man easy to do I mean, fairly simple. Just, just, it was just a sound effect, not even a visual one, you know? Yep. As he's looking at all the canisters, he finally turns around, looks back at the dead body on the table, and the body's gone. And that's that's so cool because let's not forget that this movie is called Phantasm. And a phantasm is like a like an imaginary image, you know, like like a, like a ghost or something that you you see and it's not really there. And at first I was like, why would there be such a fresh body there and you know and 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 whatnot? And then but it's not. She's not. It's she's not really there. That's what's fucking cool. She's it's she's a phantasm. I believe the original trailer like defines phantasm. It does. It actually it does. Yeah, it does. Which is cool. Anyways, uh suddenly you hear Reggie call from Mike and he's in the like the boiler room, right? Yeah. Uh, Mike follows Reggie's voice into this boiler room, which is pretty huge, actually. And Reggie says he left one. There's a, a cr- uh, there's someone in the corner covered uh, with with like a velvet um, cloak covering them. And Reg- Reggie yells out to her. Or Reggie yells out to the person. Who are you? person's not saying anything they get closer mike pulls out his draws his gun his 45 reggie takes the blowtorch mike says where can we find him he points the gun at the person looks really badass by the way with that silver 45 fuck yeah he does pulls the cloak off of the person and the person is revealed to be liz liz's mouth is gagged and can't say anything. Mike goes, Jesus, Liz, what has he done to you? And then he turns to look back at Reggie and says, Reg, she's she's the one I told you. And Reggie's look on his face is like horrified. And he, Mike turns back to look at Liz and her back, which is still kind of covered up with the cloak, is moving. Oof. Something on her back is moving. They pull the cloak all the way back and this grotesque, almost Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger looking head like worm thing is inside her back and starts to move out of her back, still connected to it. And it's the tall man's shriveled up face who says, you play a good game, boy come East. If you dare And immediately right after that happens, Reggie goes, get the fuck back and moves Mike out of the way and torches Liz and the creature that's in her back the thing goes up in flames and it's screaming kind of like the thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this effect is awesome, dude. It looks so amazing good. and it's scary as shit. And and she looks terrified of what's going on in her back. But is that we find out really quickly, though, in the narration that that's not Liz, though. You cut to them back on a dirt road in the Hemikuda. And Reggie says it wasn't the first time the tall man left one of his calling cards, but that one was the worst so far. He must know we're on his trail because that hunchback apparition looked just like the girl in Mike's head. We're moving east, towards the state line. There's one more town, Paragord. 
And I like that they refer to her as an apparition. Like, we don't know. Like, she looks physical to us, and I'm sure she is physical, but we also don't... Like, I like that we don't know how the tall man created that, you know what I mean? And and why it clearly has some kind of... Like, the Liz portion of it clearly has some kind of sentience to it, or some kind of, like, Liz's personality somehow been, you know, um, um, you know grafted on to that apparition. Because it's not technically her apparition it's an apparition that just looks like her anyways the point is is that i like that none of it is explained and it's just another piece like another one of the things that the tall man can do and just can create these little creature things yeah yeah you're just supposed to accept this fantasy this this bizarre fantasy world we're in you just accept it this horror fairy tale yeah and and it's easy to do that you're like okay cool and it's very matter of fact it's like okay well this is what this is what's happening this is what he does he's been doing it we have to keep on moving we have to hunt this guy down yeah and reggie's voiceover is does a great job of of connecting that for us but it's also reggie's delivery you know and the fact that you know they throw in the line that like we've seen this before but this was the worst one so far and yeah because it was pretty fucking horrible so good from there you cut to a hearse driving down a road couple cars following behind it it's liz with her grandma and she's in what i'm assuming is like an oldsmobile or the accompanying car to go with the hearse yeah the sedan or something yeah grandmother's talking to grandma's talking to liz saying this is horrible she's like i buried my grandchild and both my grandchildren now my husband it's so hard to live past the ones you love and then liz is like Hey, Grandma, you still got me and Jerry, okay? Like, uh, that's supposed to be comforting? She's lost her grandchild, her children, and now her husband. Like, Jesus Christ, five, three, four people? Hey, Grandma, don't worry. Got me and Jerry. (laughs) But you don't have Jerry, though. Yeah, because the Grandma then goes, I don't see much of Jerry, but how are you? Are you still having those nightmares? And Liz is like kind of distracted. She's like, um, no, no, not anymore. Driving the car is Father Myers, who's looking at Liz kind of like suspiciously. Cut to the uh, hearse pulling into the cemetery. The mortuary workers exit the mausoleum. They look almost like twins, these two guys. They're dressed exactly alike. They look like zombies. Yeah, they're goons. Yeah, just goons. They take the grandfather inside. Jerry and Liz are helping their grandmother walk into the chapel, and she starts to collapse, and she's like, I can't. And Jerry's like, you got to be strong, Grandma. And Liz is like, you know, Grandpa would have wanted that. And they walk her into the chapel, and the priest follows behind them, looking very worried. And by the way, this is when I noticed that this was Paragord, Oregon. Yeah, Paragord, Oregon, uh, population 891. Yeah, that's right. We drive past the sign that shows that. Yeah, and I I mean, before that would have made no difference. But now we live in Oregon, and I'm like, hey, Oregon. Is there a Paragord? I don't know. I live in Eugene, um, but that is still so clearly Los Angeles or the surrounding areas. It it definitely looks like California. I think it's Valencia at that point, like in the hills somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you could hear them rides from Magic Mountain and whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> true, very true. From there, you cut to the funeral services. Father's giving the whole speech to the father, the son, the holy spigot. And 
grandma comes to the casket and she's looking at her husband who's now dead. The priest comforts her saying he's left a life of trouble and he's gone to God. Cut to the back of the chapel and Jerry's whispering to Liz. She's like, last train leaves at six and I got to be on it. And Liz is like, damn it, Jerry, I need you to stay here at least one more day. <laughs> Jerry's, Jerry's like, like, fucking, I'm out. Fucking she's late. Like, I got to get back to Bruce and Stevie. <laughs> and she's like, besides, grandma's a tough cookie. Like, oh, my God. Fucking your entire family's dead. Hey, she didn't give a shit. I mean, she's she's Jerry's got a life, man. She got a life to get back to. And you know what? Probably saves her fucking life, too. Well, does. But yeah, yeah, because she probably splits really fast or she's dead. Or yeah, because does she come back for the next movie at all? Nope. OK, OK. Because she leaves and then Liz goes after her when she leaves the chapel and she's now in the mausoleum. Jerry's nowhere to be seen. And it's literally right after. Yeah, you're right. It's like she walks out and just disappears. One may assume that she's dead, but we never know. And by the way, this is all a set. Um, Because of the budget that they had, they were actually able to craft this entire mausoleum, the, the inside of the church... Um, you know, the, the embalming place later, you know, the, the, the room with the white room and everything, like all of that, they were able to build because of the, uh, budget that they had in, in this. Oh, one. cool. I mean, I, I love it. It was one of the reasons why I chose to do, um, the other mausoleum movie we did. Yeah. Uh, one dark night. Yeah. One dark night. Cause I love mausoleums. And I thought, where do they, what mausoleum, where's this? What mausoleum is this at? Because I want to go to that one. But it's a set, so. Yep. Yeah, this so was a set. So fuck me, right? <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> so Liz is searching down the hallways, uh, and then she hears like a weird guttural sound. And then you just get a slight flash of one of the dwarves wandering off. She starts to go a little bit further to research it. Suddenly there's the voiceover in her head, and she goes, it's not a dream. Mike, where are you? And you cut to Mike waking up in the hotel slash motel room. And I like the way she figured out it wasn't a dream because she dug her fingernails into the palm of her hand. That, yeah, great, great moment. Have you ever done that, by the way? No, but it always reminds me of the uh, priest in jail in Nightbreed who does it, and then he kind of slams his hand against, like, the wall. But that was the first time I'd ever seen it as a kid, and then I became obsessed. I didn't know you could actually do it, so, like, I started to try to do it and, and whatnot, too. you know? I tried to do it, too, but I think we don't have long nails. No, no, we. <laughs> I don't think I can. Yeah, I can't get it. <laughs> you ever, ever known a guy with a long, one long nail? He, like, would the- use it to open up. Well, probably snort cocaine. Uh, or, I was going to say the, or, the cocaine nail. Yeah. Never known anybody like that? No, no, no. But don't um don't a lot of uh, guitarists uh, keep their nails long so they can kind of yeah, pick, uh, pick on their... Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think I think long nails on guys are kind of gross. Not going to lie. It's weird, man. Just, no, it's weird. Just use a pick, keep, man. Use a pick. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Mike jerks awake. Uh, he's on, he's in bed. And he immediately looks over at Reggie. He's like, she's in danger. And Reggie's like, who? Mike's like, the girl. He found her. And Reggie goes, you said that six months ago. He opens up the curtains to reveal a beautiful view. The most fucking beautiful fucking view that a motel would ever have. And I'm like, this place should be like a five-star 
hotel, not like a motel with that fucking view right there. <laughs> right. And and Don Coscarelli, like he knows it's a view, so he keeps that one. This is all like sort of one shot take type of thing, you know? Yeah, and, and the camera's like stationary, but then starts to pan in. Yeah. So they're packing up their gear, they're leaving, and, and Mike's like, I'm certain. This time we're we're close. We're close to the tall man. We're close to the tall man and to her. And they start to grab all their gear and they walk out. And as they're walking out, the camera stays inside the motel room, but they're but they're now outside getting in the car. And Reggie goes, Yeah, maybe, but I'm still betting that she's just a wet dream. <laughs> and he's like, We're almost there, Reg. Soon I'll, we'll find her and him. And they get in their car and they go. That's a great little shot. Great little scene, you know? Great little scene, dude. Yeah. Cut back to the mortuary chapel cemetery in Paragord. And to answer your question, uh, I just I Googled it. I don't, there does not seem to be a Paragord in Oregon. Okay. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. Mystery <laughs> solved. Mystery now I can sleep solved. tonight. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we can all sleep soundly tonight. Cut back to Grandma saying her last goodbyes to Grandpa. It's very sad, very sweet. She's a very good actress, by the yeah. way. And she walks, starts to walk out of the chapel. By the way, while she's saying her goodbyes, he takes a big swig from his whiskey yeah. flask. Yeah, he's clearly he's about to do going through really, some shit. He's going through some shit, and he's about to do something really fucked up. And she says her last goodbyes. He goes up to the casket, and he says, Forgive me, Lord, but I must end the sacrilege. I cannot shut my eyes to the things I've seen. It must be stopped. In an instant, he pulls out the biggest fucking dagger I've ever seen. Yeah. And he jams it into the grandpa's chest. Suddenly, you hear a loud gasp. Oh! Turns around with this funny point of view shot from Father Myers. The like close up on his face, like it's very like Evil Dead esque. I that's my note here. Um, the shot of him turning around reminded me of a Sam Raimi shot, and that that doesn't surprise me because later there's a Sam Raimi reference um, in the movie. So sure I is. think we've talked before about how writers and whatnot have to cite you know their sources and stuff, and I think this is him citing his sources, and and his source is. I think his his friend and and you know uh, a peer Sam Raimi and I think this shot right here of the of the priest turning around is a very Sam Raimi esque shot, you know. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And yeah, he turns to look at Grandma, and Grandma's now passed out on the floor because she's fainted at the sight of her deceased husband getting a dagger in his chest it's and it's like a giant dagger too like the like the kendorian yeah. dagger from army of darkness it's like fucking huge it's huge it's huge cut back to liz and she's walking further down the corridor of the mausoleum she sees a casket at the end of the hall that's crusted in dirt just and it's like steaming practically liz walks up to it and goes to, like, open it. And before she does that, a hand comes out of nowhere and puts it on her shoulder. She turns and realizes it's the tall man. She goes, you! And he goes, the graveside service is about to begin. She kind of backs away from him and takes off. I forgot to point out, and this is very important, as she's walking down the hallway, she has a little, like, lapel pin needle that she pulls out of her sweater to use as a weapon. Um... 
this is something that was very popular i think in the 80s it's like a it's like a three inch long pin needle with just the tip being kind of closed off and the top of it having like a little like uh butterfly or you know something like some kind of adornment like a charm yeah Yeah. exactly and yeah and you're right that is something you don't really see anymore feels like a very 80s thing but she's gonna she thinks she's gonna use it as like some sort of you know self-defense type like a dagger yeah yeah well she kind of did in a way because as she staggers off and runs away from the tall man you cut back to the tall man who has the pin in his finger and it's jammed through his finger with yellow blood dripping from it and he goes to lick it yeah, that's cool. It's a great effect. You know, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really well blocked out shot because you could tell it has to be on the other side of Angus Grimm's, you know, finger. But he does a great job of keeping his hand sort of at the right angle to like block it and everything. I I don't think it should ever be forgotten how good of an actor Angus Scrim was. Like I. He, I don't think he just stumbled on to this role or or whatever. I think this role was made great by him. I think I think the tall man lives on because of how great he was. Yeah, he's a classically trained actor who takes his craft, who took his craft very seriously, and found this role that he became totally known for. But the reality is he was like a super sweet guy and a very talented man who who did other films besides this. But I think, you know, for this to be his legacy, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I got to um, back you up on that one. I have heard nothing but the highest praise uh, from fans who've met him um, when he was alive and, and said he was so warm and so grateful to his fans that I think that's awesome, man. I think that's really freaking cool. Yeah, totally, totally. We're going to see him fairly soon. He actually is not in this as as much as you think he would be. Yeah, no. Which he's, is fine. He's, yeah. It's totally fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. It's yeah. I think he's in it the perfect amount. I agree. I agree. From there, you cut to Father Myers' home, who uh, Father Myers is sitting at his office desk in his uh, study. I, I, I suppose. Pretty big a house for a priest. Well, does that surprise you? <laughs> no, I guess not. Nope. <laughs> and by the way, I know that the house probably was in L.A., but I see a lot of that, those style of houses up here with, like, those rock brick pillar things holding yeah. up the, you know, the front, I don't know, porch or whatever. It reminds me of a house in Pasadena. Yeah, It does, but those also, that's how they some of the houses up here look as well. So I was like, cool. oh, okay. That it must to me, I took it away as it must be a Pacific Northwest, you know, overall Pacific Northwest yeah. feature. Fits into the Oregon yep. vibe, the fact that it's in Paragord. Yep. A place that does not a place that does not exist, only in your mind. Uh so he's he hears some sounds, but he's getting he's like drinking himself into uh because he's witnessed so many horrible things, right? People getting killed and he knows what's like he you get the sense that he knows what's going on in the town. I mean, he's the last, he's one of the last men standing in this town that's been murdered. And I think, yeah, he's lost his mind because he's seen what's going on. Right. He hears a scratching sound coming from his front door. He goes, that blasted wind. 
He continues to hear the sound banging against the door. He gets, starts getting pissed off as he's getting drunk. He goes, damn this wind! And he runs over to the door, opens up the peephole, and inside the peephole on the other side of the door is Liz's grandfather pressed up to the door looking at him. It's a shocking moment. Dude, it made me jump the first time uh, I was watching it for my funsies viewing. I jumped. I love this little scene. It's built up very well, and it's like it's like a minute and a half or something. But it's a master crafts. It's a master craft intention and build up. And then even this, I feel like some of the shots here when he sees it and the kind of camera zooms in, I feel like that was another Sam Raimi esque shot. But it, but it worked works beautifully. It totally does. And then if you think about what happens in part three, part three has even more kind of Raimi-esque moments in it. I think yeah. Evil Dead-esque moments. Yeah, so after I watched this, I, I texted Zach. I want, I'm want. i actually going to try to go and buy all of them because I, whether we you know cover Donnie C next year or not, I want to rewatch all the Phantasms now. I want to watch part three because I don't really remember it all that much. So he kind of leans a little bit more like into that direction in part three, like the, the crazy zoom ins and stuff like that. Yeah. And then in part four, part four is definitely a misstep. And then part five is like hoofah. Yeah. Godspeed. Anyways, um, from there you cut to grandma's house with Liz. Liz is kind of shutting down the house for the night, checking in on her grandma who's asleep in her bed medication probably put her to sleep obviously from all the trauma that she's been through earlier that day later on that night grandma wakes up she looks over at the clock to see what time it is it's like almost three in the morning and you see like from her looking over at her nightstand and then you see that she's alone initially in her bed then she turns back to lay down to go back to sleep and when she lays back down Inside her bed is her husband, who is now a corpse, and he looks over at her. She screams out, ah! and it, the corpse kind of looks over at her and raises his eyebrows at her. <laughs> I know. He's cut like, from that scene. That's like, the end of that scene. He's like, why are you screaming, bitch? <laughs> I'm back, baby. I'm back. Back in the New York groove. <laughs> These pain pills are amazing. <laughs> so from there, you cut back to the Hemikuda. Mike is uh, in the passenger seat driving, kind of asleep. And as it's cruising down the highway, he starts to wake up and he drives and they drive slowly. He's almost like having a dream sequence moment, right? Well, because he is, he's dreaming. And he sees in his dream a woman hitchhiking on the side of the road. That same woman is the dead body that he saw earlier at the mortuary on the table that disappeared. And so... I have a pet peeve in movies where they when in a movie when when they flash back to something in the movie that we've already seen. I I can't stand that except for here. I needed it here because when I watched it the first time when he sees her standing there, I did not immediately put it together that that was the body in the morgue that he saw. So I'm glad that as he's driving by and Mike's looking at her and she's looking at him, it does this like quick flash of the body and everything. And I'm like, oh, that's her. I'm so glad Don Coscarelli did that in this scene. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's really well done uh, yet again. <laughs> yeah. 
So after he sees her, makes that connection, he wakes up, he snaps awake, and he looks over at Reggie. And Reggie's got a kind of a smirk on his face. And, he, and Mike's rubbing his eyes, and he's like, I was dreaming about this girl. And then, sudden, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, the girl pops up in the back of the car and says, hi. <laughs> and Reggie goes, oh, sorry to startle you, pal, but I picked her up about 50 miles ago. Mike, this is alchemy. And he's all excited. <laughs> and she goes, it's Kemi for short. Nice to meet you. And then Mike says to Reggie, he's like, Reg, can you pull over? I got to take a leak. They pull over to the side of the road. Kemi stays in the car. Mike and Reggie walk down kind of into the bushes. They're standing really close to each other. And the angle that they're standing at each other, they're clearly pissing on each other's shoes. Well, One of them is. Well, the funny thing is, I don't think Mike has to pee, but but Reggie does. And Reggie has no problem peeing with Mike literally touching like his, his shoulders and everything. Yes. I'm like, I, I could never, ever pee like that with someone just looking at me and talking at me like well that. i will tell you i totally agree with you i I'm, I'm in the same boat however teaching my son to pee and standing on standing at a toilet and peeing with him uh i used to be super self-conscious about all that stuff but i pee with him standing there we call it crossing streams or like <laughs> you want to cross streams like yeah let's cross streams and we pee in the same toilet together tmi i know my point is Mike is Reggie's kid basically yeah. at this point. So yeah. they have like this father son relationship. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of where that goes. That's where I go with it. Okay. Yeah. And then I think <laughs> I I'm with you hundred percent on that. Reggie, everybody is... listening's like, Oh shit. I know way too much about Zach's <laughs> Zach. Now. I know. Right. I <laughs> think they streams. I think they already learned that, uh, years ago, but, uh, all you yeah. new listeners though. Welcome. Welcome to my life. <laughs> welcome to the, welcome to the party, pal. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> Reggie is the father figure for, for Mike, for sure. For sure. Yeah, and then Mike says to Reggie, he's like, she's in my dreams, but but she's dead in my dreams, talking about Kemi. He goes, for her sake, I don't think she should get involved with us. And Reggie's like, well, do your dreams always come true? <laughs> Mike's like, well, not exactly, but pretty damn close. And Reggie goes, well, shit, Mike, have you looked at her? Hell, we've been out here for a long time, and it gets hard on the road. <laughs> Mike goes, Reg, you're thinking with the wrong head. This girl's in danger. Reggie's like, well, she's in danger with us or without us. With us, we can protect her. Isn't that logical? And Mike goes, well, in a horny sort of way. Dude. <laughs> they go back up to the car, and Mike goes, hey, Kemi, so Kemi, where are you headed? And she goes, um, to my hometown, Paragord. Dun, dun, dun. And Reggie goes, Paragord, here we come. Reggie grins at fucking Mike like, I'm going to get laid pretty soon, I hope. Dude, Reggie got over his family getting blown up pretty fucking quickly, bro. Well, these months have gone by. We're supposed to assume that months have gone by. I mean, come on. If that was your family, would you get over that in months? Of course not. (laughs) I've got really loud. Of course not. Of course not. But, you know. It gets hard on the road. It gets hard on the road. <laughs> okay. <laughs> touche. Touche, my friend. Oh, man. Anyways, cut back to Liz now at her home, grandma's home. She's waking up. She comes out of her bedroom in the morning, and she's the lights are on in the hallway. She's turning the lights off. She goes over to grandma's room. The bed's empty. She walks over to the end table. In, at the end table 
is her pin that she stuck the tall man with in the table with the yellow blood trailing from it. And then you hear a voiceover of the tall man saying, if you want her, come and get her tonight. And so she heard that in her head from touching the the needle, the broche needle or whatever it is. So I like that. I don't need an explanation that like, I don't need them to say, oh, when I touch things that he's touched, I can hear him in my head. I don't need any of that. It's just, I get it. She's psychic. Yeah. She can touch that, that needle. And, and, she, and he basically left a message for her. Yeah, that's all you need. Yep. Yeah. Again, yeah. so his script in this movie so economical he just gets right to the point with no fucking fat around the edges no fat around the edges donnie c baby donnie c cut back to the downtown of paragord which you know whatever it's the original shot from earlier in the movie yeah i i know a i picked car up on turned that on its side it, it, it's fine i have no problem with it i again i yeah i got no beef with it either cammy's looking out the window of the cuda and she's going looks like a ghost town Things sure have changed since I left. Mike goes, well, how long ago was that? She's like, well, it must be 10 years. Reggie says, we're going to need a place to hold up. And she goes, well, my uncle owns a bed and breakfast on the far side of town. Since you guys have been so nice to me, I'm sure he'll give you a room. Reggie goes, oh, that'd be great. Big smile on his face again. I'm going to get laid. (laughs) Yeah, he is. They drive down the road. Cut back to Liz entering Paragord Cemetery. She goes into the cemetery, and she's looking around the graves. She, find, she finds the grave of one Robert Cop. No, kidding. Yeah, I know, dude. It's Alex Murphy. And I was like, and I texted Zach. I took a picture of it. I texted Zach, and I go, it's RoboCop's grave. And guess what? It's empty, just like RoboCop's grave would be. <laughs> yeah, it says, beloved husband and father, rest in peace. Grave's empty. She's freaked out. You hear the tall man's voiceover say, I've got them both. She looks up at the mortuary and says, not my grandma. (laughs) Not my grandma, no! Not my grandma. (laughs) And she starts heading toward the mortuary. Yeah, spoiler alert, yes, your grandma got got. (laughs) Exactly. From there, the cuda pulls up in front of the bed and breakfast. It looks like it's called Paragord Manor, but then it's like spray painted over closed or whatever. Yeah. And Kemi's like, what the hell? And they get out of the car. They start walking up and she, Kemi's like, I'm going to go take a look around. Maybe I can find an open window. Reggie and Mike survey the area around them. They look at all the houses. Uh, They look over at one house that has a light on. Suddenly you see the window that has a light shining in it. The blind goes down and Reggie says, you, you see that? And Mike goes, yep, trapped and too scared to come out. Nothing to do but watch and wait. Dude, and this is another thing that I love. Creepy. This, this town could have been completely dead, but no, it's not. It's not It's not fully there yet because he's still, you know, tinkering at it. This is, it's, it's, I mean, it's on its last legs, obviously. But again, this is world building just the fact that there's another family there's still some people there dude you could make a whole movie about what the fuck those people are going through you know what i mean it's i mean hell you can make here's here you go make a fucking comic book uh, a spinoff but take that scene right there and show us those people right there and spin that off into whole like a tv show or something phantasm but the point is 
this movie all is so fertile, fertile for for world building, and it's little moments like that. Don Coscarelli did not have to put that in there. They could have just looked around, saw a dead street, and that was it. But no, this adds an extra little layer of flavor to the movie. Yeah, so badass, so badass. I love this next moment. Kemi, Reg, and Mike are at the entrance to the bit at the entrance to the B and B. Kemi's like, I can't believe they just abandoned this place. I don't have a key. I don't know how the hell we're going to get in. Reggie smiles and says, allow me. And he jerks his chainsaw because they're all loaded up, ready to, they're all armed up. Suddenly Mike grabs Kemi out of the way, like totally fast, like pulls her out of the way. And then Mike, and then Reggie carves into the door, cutting it open. And I mistakenly watched this movie the first time on the default 5.0 5.0 surround sound setting and that chainsaw was at like a hundred decibel whereas oh, the shit. whereas the talking was at like you know a five decibel and i was like fuck it was like literally the worst sound i'd ever had second viewing i switched it over to the 2.0 you know standard sort of sound infinitely better guys and gals infinitely better Infinitely better. Yeah. My my speakers almost didn't survive the first viewing. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> From there, you cut to Mike and Reggie now arming the house, right? Um, booty traps. Booty traps. Booty <laughs> traps. They they so they put a beer can on the side of the on, on the door with a grenade in it and the string lined up to basically pull the grenade if the door gets triggered open, which is fucking awesome. And Kemi's like watching all this unfold and she's kind of in disbelief. And Mike is arming a shotgun uh, to shotgun trap, right? To blast. So the, the, the string would get pulled, the, the grenade would go off and the shotgun would blast whoever's at the door. Yep. Yep. Reggie says to Kemi, he's like, we've been tracking this guy for a long time and we're getting close. And Kemi's like, sounds pretty weird to me. <laughs> And uh, Reggie goes, well, believe it or not, you'll sleep safely tonight. She goes, as long as I don't sleepwalk. And she starts to kind of like uh, head up to bed in the second story of their, uh, this it, this is a two-story building. Yeah, yeah. Home. And Reggie goes, just stay in bed and we'll be back before dawn. Mike starts to walk out and Cammy kisses Reggie's bald head. And she goes, wake me up when you get back. And he goes, Sure. And I like when Mike walks past Reggie, kind of hits him a little bit. and He bumps uh, into him. Bumps yeah. into him, but also kind of smirks while he does it. And and Reggie sort of shoots him a look, you know. And this is when I wrote down. I go, oh, uh, Reggie Bannister and James LeGros, they have really good chemistry together. And uh, Don Coscarelli calls that out in the, in the documentary, the 45-minute the one on this uh, Shout Factory, Blu-ray. And he's like, look. And I'm sure a Michael Baldwin would, you know, would have had great chemistry too. Or, you know, obviously, because he knows Reggie Bannister. He's like, but one thing he did really love about James LeGros is that him and Reggie immediately sort of clicked and, and it really, really worked. And I yeah, think it's so obvious it is. And it's, it's so necessary too, because if they're, if they didn't have the chemistry that they have here, the movie would lose a giant part of its heart. Oh yeah, Totally. Totally. That's what makes this movie so enjoyable because you believe their relationship. They've known yeah. each other for, for through Ever. the fundamental times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and it wasn't, so Reggie was 
Jody's friend, right? Jody's best friend. So, so, yeah. so obviously Reggie knew, you know, Michael growing up and everything. Yeah. Right. I love it. Hey, everybody. Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Hey, everybody. I'm Tim. And I'm Dean. And we're the hosts of Talking Back. We're a retro-based podcast covering movies, comics, video games, and more. Check us out every Monday where we hit the rewind button and dig into some of our favorite content from the past. We like to keep things fun, lighthearted, and informative. Do you feel like you need more nostalgia in your life? Then check out Talking Back. We're available everywhere podcasts are found. Hello, everybody. I'm Adam. I'm John. And every week we are giving you a blast from our past. We are the podcast that brings you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, album reviews, top tens, and more, all from the things of our nostalgic past. So please join us every single week on the Blast From Our Past podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, however you listen to podcasts, you can find us, and we would love to have you take a trip with us to the land of nostalgia. And now, back to the show. From there, you cut to Liz back at the cemetery. She's made her way into the mortuary. And when she gets in there, she's walking down the, the hallways. And I, one thing I noticed is the, when she first gets inside the mortuary, you see boxes on the side of the wall. You, saw, you see a uh, black canister, which will come back into play later mm-hmm. on. She peeks in a window and she sees uh, one of the mortuary guys, one of the, I call them like the mortuary twins. Yeah. Uh, lowering a body on the table, getting it ready to embalm it. She's watching the mortuary twin put the fluid into the body. So he, suck, he sucks the blood out of the body and then he puts the yellow embalming fluid into the body. That's when I realized, and I'm not going to lie, that's when I realized at this point, I'm like, oh, that's the tall man's blood. Yeah, yeah, it's embalming fluid, yeah. Embalming blood, yeah. Uh-huh. Liz is kind of getting grossed out by the whole thing, and then suddenly in front of her down this hallway, double doors open, and you see a gas-masked graver come in, covered in dirt, rolling a casket. She ducks down to hide as he rolls right past her. And I love the way the gravers look with the gas mask and everything. I just, world building, man. There's no explanation to them. You don't know, like, and even the the mortuary twins, they seem to have life to them because they have self-preservation later, and the balls don't seem to care one way or another about them, but they also look like they might be dead. It's it's so yeah. You just you don't quite ever know what's going on, and it doesn't. Some things it just doesn't explain to you. Like how is he recruiting these people? You know. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think you need to explain it. It reminds me of uh, what is Renfield from right. uh, Dracula. Yeah, it's probably just. It yeah, they're they're just they're probably like you know, lower IQ type of people and he can just sort of influence them type of thing. Yeah, totally. From there, you cut to Mike and Reggie rolling up on the cemetery, driving into the cemetery with their Cuda. They have the lights off so they don't get spotted. As they're driving by, they see a bunch of empty graves. You see hearses parked with their headlights on 
and you see the guys with the gas masks on. Mike and Reggie are watching them. That's when Mike says, Gravers, I've seen them in my dreams. They're the ones that exhume the bodies for them. And Mike says, well, let's circle around and make sure. So they get out of their car. Like they couldn't hear the, the Hemi Cuda driving up. Yeah, because it's electric. <clears throat> <laughs> no. So no. from there, cut back to Liz, and she's by the graver. Liz steps out to kind of get away and sneak down the mausoleum. She's walking down the mausoleum kind of like a random room, and Father Myers is in there hiding, and he's praying silently. This room that he's hiding in has this like weird kind of coffin box at the end of the room. He walks over the coffin box, opens it up, and hears like a vibration, like uh, like a humming sound. And it's the, it's the box that has the balls in it, but we don't know that yet. Yeah. And he goes to touch the lid, and it's almost like uh, it shocks him. And then he jerks his hand back out of the box, and his, and his finger is cut. I took away that it, it cut him on like a molecular level. Like, you know what I mean? And and another thing I love about this this world that, that Don Coscarelli builds is it's it's the, this mixture of religion and then high technology, you know, from another dimension. And, you know, the, and that's, again, you don't need, I don't need everything explained to me. It's just these balls are from another dimension and they're a technology I don't get. Exactly. And I know later, I think part three or something, you find out they have brains inside of them or, and I think, oh, I think one of the balls is actually Jody or something like that. Yeah. 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 I think that's in part three, they start alluding to that. And then part four, it goes way into that. And where, where they actually have him like standing there, the actor, but it's really the ball, but it's, you know, they, they're shooting him. Yeah. And yeah. So I think I have seen part four because I remember that. I don't know if Coscarelli ever envisioned it going that far. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He just kind of, had to work with the sort of the script that he wrote himself into is sort of pretty you know? much, pretty much. So Father Myers gets freaked out by that, starts walking down the mausoleum hallways as well. So him and Liz are in different locations at this point. And he's kind of praying. He's going by one room after another and he's doing the, the Holy Cross symbol. And then as he does, the tall man walks out from behind him. And he yells out to the priest. He goes, they have no need for your services father turns around terrified when he sees the tall man and the father says who are you to question the words of god's servants the tall man raises one eyebrow and kind of smirks at him (laughs) and after he does that the father's rosary that's around his chest starts to move and it whips around his neck and it pulls him the cross specifically. And I remember this being a big kind of like taboo moment. The cross from his rosary is upside down because how dare you show a cross upside down? That's sacrilegious. Oh, the Holy spirits might get freaked out. I know the the fake Holy spirits might get freaked out. Come come on. Well, speaking of straight to hell, someone's about to go to that pretty soon because uh, Father Myers is now choking from his rosary. Tall man walks over because he lifts him off the ground. The rosary lifts him off the ground. So now he can he can do, you know, telekinesis uh, Kyle shit. That's telekinesis, Kyle. (laughs) Tall man walks up. (laughs) I walked up to him. Sorry, sorry. I love Wonder Boy. It's actually my favorite. it's my favorite tenacious d song and i can't hear or see 
the word telekinesis without thinking that's telekinesis, Kyle. What is the secret of your power? <laughs> so good. So that's good. So good. That's why I threw it out there. Um, and that's when the tall man approaches Father Myers and says, you think that when you die, you go to heaven, you come to us. I love that. Dude, tall man does not say a lot, but everything he does say is fucking awesome. And that is terrifying. Less is more. Because, like, do we all go to that dimension when we die? I mean, is that the inevitable end for all of us? Like, fuck. Like, I, I hung on the that, that phrase and, the, like, those two sentences. I hung on that shit. I'm Me still too, haunted by, that, by those two sentences. Such a great moment. It's going to get even better in a moment. Fuck so yeah. suddenly the rosary drops the priest, Father Myers, to the ground. He runs off in fear. And the camera, the tall man standing there with kind of like a smirk and with an eyebrow raised, the camera pans past the tall man to the coffin box that we saw earlier, just moments ago. And the front of the coffin box opens up. Three doors open up, to be specific. And inside those three doors are not one, but three silver spheres. Actually, two of them are silver. One of them is gold. The center one is gold. Yeah. All three spheres kind of roll out on these little shelving unit things. And the the one in the center comes out the most, and then flies out. The gold one flies out. Love it. It's awesome. Cut to another part of the mausoleum where Liz is now. She's walking past a corridor. And then that's when Father Myers grabs her, pulls her into the corridor, puts her hand out, puts his hand over her mouth to keep her from screaming. And that made me jump when I first saw it, uh, the first viewing as well. There was This got me twice. Two jump scares. Two jump scares got me. These are good jump scares because they yeah. don't have the... Like, I love Carpenter, don't get me wrong, but he does that. He's the king of the dramatic jump scare with the music kind of mm-hmm. spiking, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. D- doesn't do that here. Uh, Father Myers whispers to her. He's like, for God's sakes, girl, what are you doing here? She's like, I got to find my grandmother. Your grandmother is gone. He's taking them all. He saw, he's harvesting the entire town. Your grandmother, your grandfather, we have to warn people. Suddenly, he tells her to stay put. He's like, because he hears that noise. He's like, what's that he noise? hears that sound. Yeah, he's like, what's that sound? He goes, hi, girl. There's something coming. And he walks out into the center of the hallway of the mausoleum, just standing there. And you see the sphere coming down the hallway, flies around the corner. Not the double daggers that we're used to seeing from the original Phantasm, but now this one blade comes out, a spinning blade on, attached to a long arm, Going towards the father, we see the point of view from the sphere, which is like in a weird kind of, uh, it's almost like the same colors they used from From Beyond uh, when like, Dr. Pretorius like yeah. turns on the, 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 the waves, yeah. you know, the, the brain waves, uh, just like a, a, a distorted point of view. Like a monotone, monotone, but it's like red and white versus like black and white, you know? Exactly. Suddenly, the blade's coming right towards Father Myers. He turns. It slices his ear off his head in a very dramatic moment. And <laughs> Father Myers turns his head, blood spurting out, and screams, Ah! 
and it's it's a cool effect uh it's achieved a great effect yeah um by so essentially the actor father myers was laying down right there they turned the camera to the side and they all they did was drop the ball you know from top to bottom let gravity do its work but drop it so it goes right by his ear and then they pull with a string they pull the fake ear off as it goes by so it looks like he's standing up and it goes from screen left to right but it's he's they're really laying down and they're dropping it that's awesome yeah it's awesome brilliant and they had to shoot it twice because through a a freak accident not an accident i mean not like a physical accident but through a freak accident when they dropped the ball the timing of it was that the ball kind of fell in between frames so you didn't actually see the ball. And there's really, I mean, that's like a freak thing. There was no way of anyone to time that properly to figure that out, you know? No. And then they get it back and they're like, you can't even see the ball because it just happened to fall in between the fucking frames. They had to redo that shot. But I'm glad they did because I think it was very, it was necessary. It's a great shot and it's a great gag, a great effect. It's awesome. I know the on the Blu-ray there's deleted scenes, outtakes, and it's a little bit more gory. It, it doesn't need to be though. It's it, what you see on screen is perfectly fine. People yeah, and like, this is actually my my favorite death in the movie. And he's I mean he's gonna keep. He's, there's more to it, and I I think it's amazing. I think it's perfect the way it is. It's it's the throw. It's the it's the throwback to the original death in the first one with the added twist of that new blade. This is the first time you see that new blade, the spinning blade. You're going to see some other blades too coming up. But yeah, Father Myers, who's now uh, Salvador Dali, is (laughs) freaking out, turns, stumbles to the ground. The sphere goes past him and turns around for another pass. You see a quick shot of the tall man, just kind of like, like he's the one commanding the, the balls to go where they're going. Uh, I'm speculating, but that's the kind of the theory that I had going. And the sphere makes a U-turn. Uh, suddenly now, instead of the long spinning drill or spinning blade, it's it switches out for the two classic daggers that are now about to plunge into the forehead of the Father Myers. Shkunk! Yeah. Into his head. Suddenly the drill, the famous drill comes out, drills into his forehead, and you see blood spurting out the back of the sphere. Oh, so good. And I like how I like how when he eventually dies, it's like a switch just gets turned off. Like he's screaming, and then like once the blood ends, you know, he's gone. His the life is gone from the body, and then he just falls over dead. Yes. <laughs> he's dead out. Suddenly Liz, who's now freaked out, is trying to hide, but a hand reaches out and grabs her. It's the tall man. Jerks her off up, jerks her up off the ground. <laughs> looks jerks at her, her and says, <laughs> yeah, jerks her off. He says, hello again and goodbye. And he throws <laughs> her like a little child. It's amazing. The shot, he throws her against the wall, like uh, across the hall. Uh, and she hits the wall the you know the the marbled wall and falls to the ground she looks like a little child it's hilarious and it's a great example of of what he's capable of strength wise you know yes she's kind of groggy coming she's kind of groggy coming to and you hear a weird like raspy voice coming from a dwarf that's approaching her going 
Elizabeth. 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 She looks over at the Jawa, who's now raiding her face, and it is actually her grandma. And she goes, oh, my God, grandma. <laughs> the dwarf grabs her and starts pulling on her. She's able to break free because she has a scarf around her neck, and it's like she pulls off the pulls out of the scarf. Uh, she grab, picks up a heavy pot, or vase, and hits the dwarf so hard that it, like, slams across the hallway. Yeah, dude. I fucking love that, man. That Lassie got blasted. <laughs> Lassie got blasted. And then Liz goes, she kind of smirks, and she's like, sorry, Grandma. Oh, well. <laughs> like, she has this, like, oh, well look on her face. Like, oh, well. Oh, well. It's. I'm going to chalk it up with probably not the best acting, but I think it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think, I mean, she, her grandma's dead. You'd think she'd be a little bit more sad about that, but she's yeah. not really, she doesn't seem to really care. Anyways, cut to Liz escaping from the mortuary, running into the cemetery, falling into an open grave, and then out of nowhere, a masked graver comes out from behind her and grabs her. She screams, the masked man pulls the mask off his face, and it's Mike. She realizes it's Mike, and she goes, Michael, and they start making out. Yeah, right away. I was like, yeah, get it, Mike. <laughs> this is hilarious. And then Reggie comes up from the top of the grave, and he goes, what the hell's going on? And Mike, like, is startled, and he looks up at Reggie and goes, oh, Reggie, this is Elizabeth. And he has this big smile on his face like, okay, hey. the movie can end now. Yeah, we roll, did it. Roll credits. <laughs> Reggie stares at the two of them in kind of disbelief. He hops into the grave with them because there's a hearse driving right past them. Mike pokes his head up, makes sure the hearse is starting to move away, says to Reggie, I'll go get the car. Reggie nods, pulls Liz out of the out of the grave, and she's got like this look of like kind of amazement, like, oh my God, it's amazing. Right? <laughs> Again, another moment of like, wouldn't she be traumatized? But she doesn't who knows, whatever. Well, yeah, you know. I mean, whatever. I mean, Reggie lost his entire family. He's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I, they're, they're all just, like, kind of, like, happy to be alive, I guess. Yeah, th- it, this is not that kind of movie, I think. You know, like, we just have to kind of roll roll with it, basically. Yeah. It, you know, you are, clearly, and so am I. But I think for the viewers, it's this is not an emotion movie. This is not one where you're going to dwell on your emotions. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. From there, you cut to all of them being back at the B&B. Yeah, and I like Mike using the flamethrower to start the fireplace. It's so badass. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's him. It's like, he, it's not, nowadays, they'd be like, oh, you can't let the lead actor use a blowtorch. I thought the exact same thing. Every time he fires that thing off, that's actually James LeGros. And I'm like, okay, that's you would never be able to do that in 2023. Nope. Thank God for 1988. Exactly. Liz is talking about what happened to her family. She's like, he took my grandma, turned her, in some, turned her into some kind of, and Mike goes, dwarf? Yeah, we've seen it. We've seen it before. He harvests the dead, crushes them down, and then ships them off to God knows where. And Reggie says, yeah, he got my my whole family. And he, Reggie is like sitting on the couch with Kemi. Mike moves, looks over at the window and makes sure like everything's set up. The traps are all set. Reggie says, I don't think we ought to hang around this place waiting for him to come get us. And Mike says, well, it's only a couple more hours till daybreak, so why don't we get some shut-eye and then bang out of here in the morning? 
By the way, keep... I, bang out. Yeah. I, I, I forgot that that phrase is old because I, I feel like it had a resurgence like a few years ago, you know, like let's bang out of here. And so when I heard Mike say that, I was like, oh, this actually kind of feels contemporary. But then it it's does. like, oh, it's, it's just everything just comes full circle. It always does. Like if you live long enough, you just see the same things happening over and over again. I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense that this was a, an 80s phrase, you know, and it just came back. Yeah, the, the the bad things cycle themselves, and sometimes the good things, too. Yep, exactly. And bang out's a good one. And bang out is a good one. Well, someone's going to get banged in a second. <laughs> um, because Liz and Mike go upstairs. My, Liz goes, I could use some sleep. And Mike goes, come on, I'll watch over you. Yeah, um, he does a great job watching over her. He falls immediately asleep. Yes, exactly. And then Reggie looks at Kemi. They're on the couch together, and Reggie goes, and I'll watch over you. Kemi gets up. She's wearing pajamas. She takes off her top. Sure. And leads him upstairs to bang. <laughs> to bang Different out. kind of bang out. There you go. From there, you cut back to Mike and Liz asleep. Mike's gun is on the nightstand next to them. Yeah, and then this was like, I was like, immediately. He falls immediately asleep. He's like, I'll watch over you. Yeah, right. Didn't last that long. But then suddenly they wake up. Liz looks over at Mike and says, I love you, Michael, but she's not, she's saying it in her mind. And Mike goes, your lips aren't moving. And Liz goes, we're dreaming. And Mike goes, wow, this is great. Yeah. And the subtitle says we're chaining and not, it doesn't say we're dreaming. It says we're chaining. C-H-A-I-N-I-N-G. Chaining. Go fuck yourself. Whoever wrote the subtitles. Go fuck yourself. Shout factory. (laughs) Scream factory. (laughs) And then Liz, in her mind, tele- telepathically, is saying, we're different, Mike. That's why he wants us. We're the only ones who can see what he's doing. I prayed so hard that you'd find me, and you did. And Mike goes, I know. I know. <laughs> and so apparently there was a sex scene here, like a dream sex scene that they had to cut. But like, It's in ev- the deleted scenes, it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, so basically... They'll be making out and having sex like in the woods and then it'll transition to the beach. And then it, I think it eventually transitioned to them falling through the air and then they land on the, the bed. And, and I, I do like how she says, like, that's the safest sex we're ever going to have because it was just essentially all in their head. That's I, funny. I don't think they needed to cut that. I think that could have be, could have been fun and whimsical. Yeah, but they, they cut it because ultimately it wasn't for like time or anything. My understanding was it just didn't work. I think they, they were like, it just ultimately it just didn't work, so they cut it. And I'm like, I would rather that than have it be cut because they're trying to meet some rated R thing. I'd rather just be if something be cut because you look at it and you're like, eh, it doesn't play, you know? Yeah, well, and then to go from that silly sex scene to this silly sex scene, which we're about to see. And I and I like, for, in having watched the deleted scenes, I like the Reggie Kemi one better. Yeah, it's very silly. Because you cut to Reggie with Kemi. Kemi's straddling Reg, and she's kissing his head. And she's like, God, Reg, I love your head. And and apparently that was something they sort of came up with. Because she was like, I mean, you know, she's young. She's beautiful. She's like, why would I be, you know, fucking this old guy? And they kind of came up with this idea that she had a bald fetish, basically. You know, bald head fetish. And he and this moving forward, this becomes like a gag in the in the Phantasm movies because in Phantasm three he has a very another silly sex scene. Okay. As well, yeah, with, with the uh, that's with the Af- African American girl, right? Yeah, but prior to that, okay. something else. Okay. 
Uh, and I believe so. I think so. It's been a while. Um, been a while. It's been a while. So from there, yeah, she's right. She's still got her underwear on. He's still got his pants on. It's very, it's safe sex. It, it is, but I, I think we're supposed to believe that they're actually having sex, though. Yes, and she's she's riding him like a cowboy. She like is. A, she's riding him like a cowgirl. She's uh, <laughs> lassoing, and he's kind of freaked out, but also turned on at the same time. And she's, like, smacking his head, beating his head, and, and apparently after this, this scene that they filmed, like, his head was all bruised and everything Jesus. and whatnot. <laughs> well, that tracks. Uh, suddenly they hear this loud explosion, and Reggie kind of throws her off of him, and she's like, what rich reg like she like, didn't hear that explosion right doesn't seem to even care reggie comes out of the bat out of the bedroom mike comes out of the bedroom they charge they look at each other they charge downstairs the the, the doors the door uh grenade has been triggered the the shotgun has gone off uh reggie has a, the chainsaw and mike's got a gun they walk over and they realize nobody's there and Reggie says, uh, Kemi must have, Kemi's uncle must have had a cat or a dog. I can't tell. And they look up, the, the camera pans over to the wall uh, near the door, and there's a big explosion, like some something exploded on the door. It could have been an animal. It's just, it's blood and hair and fur. It's right. Great. And at that point, Mike's kind of disgusted, and he's like, Reg, who are we kidding? I'm a 19-year-old kid, and you're a middle-aged, bald ex-ice cream vendor. And yes. Reggie goes, thanks, Mike. <laughs> That's great. I loved it. He just fucking put it all on the table right there. And Mike goes, we can't stop. We we can't kill him alone. No way. And Reggie's like, well, what about our families? Are we just going to forget about them? And Mike gets serious. He goes, we'll never forget about them. But, Reg, we have other people still alive who are depending on us cuts from there you cut to liz putting on her sweater and looking out the window of the bedroom that she's in she looks out one window doesn't see anything she looks out another window doesn't see anything she looks out of the third window and the tall man appears out of nowhere smashes through the window and yanks liz out with was, him yeah that was cool i liked it. i mean i saw it coming but i liked it you knew it was coming yeah and i'm glad they went through with it yeah me too yeah from there, Mike and Reggie run upstairs, but it's too late. Liz is passed out in the trunk of the hearse, and he drives off with her. Cut to the front of the B&B as, it, as the tall man rolls away. Reggie and Mike, Reggie says, I'll get the gear. Mike runs down to get the car, hops in the Hemikuda to pull it up in the front of the B&B. And I, by the way, I noted I liked that. He kind of he kind of jumps in through the passenger window, slides and lands in the back seat, and then kind of slides up into the front seat, all in like sort of one take and everything. I was like, that was cool. That was fun. I dug that. Very cool. Reggie and Mike go to the car to get in to take off. Kemi runs out with Reggie, and she's like, let me go with you. Reggie goes, no way. <laughs> He's like, take take Liz's car and get a hundred, go a hundred miles south and don't stop. Now go. And she's like, but what's going to happen to you? How will you find me? And Reggie goes, I'll find you if I'm able. And she goes, what is what is that? She goes, what do you mean if you're able? He looks at her lovingly and he gets in the car and they leave. It made me think of 
Night of the Living Dead remake where he's like, do what I t- just do what I tell you to. And then, you know, give her a kiss and runs off, you know, or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> From there, you cut to the Hemikuta driving down the road, trying to speed up to the hearse. Mike tells Reggie to load up. He loads up his four-barrel shotgun. So badass. Love it. It just, like, makes you in love with just unique weapons. Fuck yeah, dude. They pull up next alongside the hearse. Reggie's looking over at the hearse. Reggie chokes, by the way. He totally chokes. He sees the tall man, and he gets startled. He, he freaks out, and Mike goes, Just shoot the fucker! And before Reggie has a chance to do it, the tall man turns the wheel and bashes the Hemikuda off the side of the road, the Hemikuda hits a rock, flips over, and is destroyed. It's yeah. a great car crash. And it's yeah. a sad car crash because you're like, that was a beautiful car, and it's now it's gone. Yeah, yeah. And they had to, uh, they, they did get like a, a, a junked up version. They repainted it, you know, to, to, to do that. But he does talk about the fact that like when he decided to bring back the Hemikuda for this movie, he had he didn't realize that at this point that that car was super valuable and super rare, you know, and he's like, oh, shit, it just it kind of ballooned the budget a, a smidge. But he's like, eh, I'm bringing it back anyways. Shit, still a three million dollar movie. It's practically nothing by today's standards. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, I guess back then it was a lot. Well, I mean, uh, I did this math one time on Cartwright because we were talking about something. It's at this point, it's probably doubled. I would say three mil back then is probably like a ten or eleven mil movie now. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. From there, you see the hearse drive off to the Paragord Cemetery. Cut back to the crash site. Mike has been thrown from the car. He's lucky he's not fucking dead. He wasn't he wearing a fucking seatbelt. Nope. Now he's out of the car. He's kind of stumbling to get up. And, and I love how he walks past a tree that's on fire with the muffler of the car in it. Just that image. Like, I don't even need to see the car. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, no. that's a powerful image with the, the muffler in the tree and the whole tree just engulfed in fire. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And this is a cool moment because Mike starts yelling to Reggie and it's, he's kind of, it's kind of in slow motion as he's trying to hustle. It's almost like the feeling you would have being in a horrible car crash and coming to and realizing you have to save your friend who could be dying. Yeah. Reggie is in the car upside down and the seatbelt is jammed so he can't get out. Mike runs over to him. Reggie tells him, get me a knife. Mike runs to the back of the Hemikuda, kicks open the trunk. Everything falls out. He has the wherewithal to grab one of the bags of weapons and pulls it out from the car. At this same moment, you see gasoline pouring out of the Hemikuda, and the gasoline is traveling towards the burning tree. Reggie says to Mike, just give me the knife and get the hell out of here. There's no use in both of us frying. And Mike slides in the car, and he's like, no way, partner. And he starts cutting the seatbelt from the car quickly cuts the seatbelt free pulling reggie out of the car reggie has the wherewithal to grab his double barrel his four barrel shotgun slowly moving his way out of the car mike's like come on we gotta go we gotta go reggie's like okay come on uh, i'm moving and they get both get out of the car running away from it as the gas gets to the tree with the flame the flame ignites the gas flame travels back to the car and 
there's a huge explosion from that moment, sending Mike and Reggie to the ground. Is the Hemikuda in part three at all? Yeah, it, it comes up in every movie moving forward. Okay. So it's like, how did they get the car? Well, they got another Hemikuda. So, so it's kind <laughs> of like Max Rokotansky's uh, Last of the V8s, the, the car that, in Mad Max, you know, it's in all, even if it gets blown up, it'll come back in the next one, you know? Yeah, and it does. And it needs God. to, because the, the Hemikuda now is, is much of an extension of them, you know, as anything else, you know? Moving forward, though, based on the ending of this, it's just a, it's a little implausible, I, you know, just like well, the car was destroyed. At least they could mention that he got another one. Yeah. And if and if I don't remember to ask later, I'll ask it now. Do you just go Phantasm one Phantasm two? Is that sort of your head? I do, cannon? Yeah, because because sadly, I'm like Reggie's dead. Yeah, I know. It, it, the way it's portrayed at the end of this, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty carved up. Okay. Okay. Sadly. And I don't want that to happen, but that's the case. What yeah. are you going to do? Gonna Anyways, do? from there you cut to Reggie and Mike on foot heading toward the mortuary. They're close. Yeah, it's funny because it's like they were almost like right next to it or something. Yeah, they were so close. Then you cut to Liz on a gurney uh, being moved down a corridor of the mausoleum her mouth is sealed shut just like it was earlier in the movie when she was not the she the when phantasm it was like the, when they saw the, the apparition or whatever the apparition of liz yeah and here's the thing and i've becoming i've becoming i've become recently fascinated with the idea that time is not linear and that that basically future events can can in, impact the past and somehow i was like this is kind of neat because she's gonna have the same like it's almost as if he's taking her essence from right now yeah and inserting it into the past scene when they find her do you, do you know what i mean so it's oh, almost yeah, like totally. a, it's almost like a retro causality type of thing yeah very cool yeah and, and they've tested that by t- testing basically people guessing, I guess, at, at, you know, answers and stuff like that, you know, t- seeing if you can figure out. Any, but people get it right more frequently if they are told whether they are right or wrong after guessing it, therefore affecting the past. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely not. Okay. Anyways, yeah. So this is just—it's a path <laughs> no, that no, I've no, gone I, down. I do. I, do, I get what you're saying. <laughs> you're like, no, and moving on. <laughs> this is not one of your fucking weird ass paranormal podcasts, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. From there, from there, Liz is now being rolled into the crematorium to be <laughs> flamed up. Cut back to Mike and Reggie hustling through the graveyard towards the mortuary. Mike and Reggie are loaded up, ready to rock. They are making their way past some of the entrances. They 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 get into like the it's like a service entrance of the mortuary. Yeah, they drill their way into it, which is cool. Yeah, dr- uh, or drill Reggie the lock, dr- drill the lock of the door, I should say. Yeah, Reggie drills the lock of the door. Mike lights his flamethrower. Reggie gets his shotgun ready. And, you know, like, this is not an important scene or anything, but my takeaway is 
I like how they're a well-oiled machine together. Reggie knows exactly what to do with the drill the lock. Mike's ready to go. He goes first with the flamethrower. I you get the sense that they've done this before, which we've we've seen. We saw that, but they've done it so much that they are a well-oiled machine, and I love that. Yeah, it, I like this because it's like I want to see more of this, of them yeah. like hunting, basically. Yeah, you want? I want to see comic books of like I want to see what what sort of took place between Reggie. Like I want to see what takes place in this movie, but in between Reggie's family dying and them meeting up with like Liz, I want to see the the hunting they were doing in between. That could be a comic book right there. Yeah, killing the the, the calling cards that the tall yeah. man left. Yep. Right? As they walk into the mausoleum, they walk past a corridor. And they stop at the embalming room. They go inside the embalming room. They're scanning the whole area. Reggie's looking at one side. Mike walks towards a a steel door. But there's something on that steel door, and we'll get to that in a second. Because from there, you cut back to Liz on the table in the crematorium, now waking up as the one of the mortuary twin guys is smashing bones to dust. And whose bones are those? Well, she's struggling. While she's struggling with the straps and trying to get herself loose, you cut to the the mortuary twin smashing up the bones and pouring the, the dust, now dust, into a bag. And the bag is labeled Mr. Sam Raimi, male, <laughs> 170 pounds, deliver in brass urn. Yeah, exactly. And like we said earlier, that's, that's you know, that's him citing his his sources and everything. Yeah, I love it. It's also an homage to like, yeah, you know, there's a little, how much we love Sam. And, and you know, also like, you know, we saw it in John Carpenter's They Live, where they mentioned, you know, uh, uh, some other directors. I forgot who they mentioned in that. George Romero. Romero, right. yeah, something yeah. like that. And then, yeah, the other movies will mention Cronenberg and stuff. And it's, it's back in the day, because this was before the internet. So, like, you know, and before, a lot of times, the idea that we were going to be able to watch these movies at nausea, at our at our choosing, you know, it wasn't really in their head. So, in his head, you know, you think that this little Easter egg is just going to kind of go by you, you know. And if you catch it, that's great. But now, in 2023, it seems cheesy. But back then, dude, this was a fucking awesome-ass Easter egg. It, it really was. And at this point in Raimi's career, he hadn't really like exploded because I, I think dark man was, uh, hadn't come out till 1990. Yeah. And so, so he was still kind of like just the evil dead guy. I, I don't think army of darkness had even come out at this point. This is 88 or 87 probably when they filmed this. So he was still somewhat of an indie director. So not yeah, unknown, he, but known to cult people. Yeah. Cause evil dead two, I think just came out pretty much before this. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. army of darkness. Wasn't out obviously years before Spider-Man and everything. So yeah, Sam Raimi was just known to like people who read Fangoria like us, you know, he was, he was one of us. He was. Goobble gobble. Yes. So from there, you cut back to Mike and Reg in the embalming room. Mike's investigating the, the door a little bit more. And then he, he looks down and sees the, the keyhole to get in looks like a, 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 something you would put the sphere into with yeah. the two daggers. Yeah. Reggie's looking at the different embalming uh, fluids and finds a bottle of hydrochloric acid. 
He takes the hydrochloric acid and he pours it into the embalming fluid. He says, like, try reanimating one of your corpses with this shit in it. Exactly. Mike shows Reggie the the door. He goes, it's round. It's got a couple of slits like one of those brain suckers. I like that term because he doesn't they don't call it the balls or whatever. No. And then Mike goes, it's a keyhole. This must be the doorway to his world. We got to catch one of those things so we can you so we can get in there. And Reg goes, yeah, sure, Mike, you catch one. (laughs) From there, they go to find Liz. Back to the crematorium. Liz is still on the gurney. She's fully awake. She looks over at the The mortuary twin. He looks over at her, and then she goes back to pretending like she's asleep. After he finishes shoveling off this, like, bone matter, he starts rolling her uh, gurney over towards one of the uh, crematorium ovens, and he, like, pulls her necklace off her. Uh, She's got a chain around her neck. He pulls it off, and he pockets it, and... Liz is still like motionless on the table. He starts to get her ready to put her into the, uh, the, the, into the oven on these rollers, puts her on the rollers. She starts rolling towards the oven. She's able to break free, kind of throw herself off the rollers. Once she does, she's pulling the bandage off her face. The mortuary guy realizes what had happened, comes over to grab her, starts pulling her up by her ears. Yeah. <laughs> And she grabs like a, a a shovel that's sitting by next to her and jerks it up in between his legs into his crotch. He falls over, moaning, onto the rollers and starts rolling into the oven. He falls into the oven. She closes the door behind him and he's torched up inside the incinerator. Yeah. You see his hand come out of nowhere in this little glass hole, like the peephole of the oven, covered sizzling in blood yeah it's awesome fucking it's awesome. awesome from there you cut to reggie who's now separated from mike walking into a down the stairs of a uh the boiler room i guess another boiler room or like a the, the basement of the mausoleum yeah yeah and as he's going down the stairs, you see underneath the stairs looking at him is one of the gravers. It's a great shot because I you're expecting somebody to be down there, maybe grab his legs. But yeah, I love it. I love it's the the graver. And I, I think the gravers are cool as shit looking. They're cool. It's a really cool um, added character to the that, that takes that doesn't take away from the tall man but it adds another element so that the tall man doesn't have to do all the killing. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's another layer of the lore. Love it. From there, you cut to Liz quickly moving out of the crematorium, and suddenly the silver sphere is whizzing down the hallway. It whizzes... <laughs> rape- whizzing. <laughs> whizzes... Uh, flies by her, right? With its blades protruding. You see a brief kind of point of view shot of the ball as it's going by Liz. She like jumps down to get away from it. Mike leaps out of nowhere and grabs her. Well, he tackles her to get out of the way. It, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's running away from the sphere. He tackles her so she doesn't get hit by the ball. It turns around for another pass to go towards her, her and now Mike. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Another mortuary guy appears, the other twin. Yeah. 
and he's got an axe in his hand and he's going to attack Liz and Mike is now fighting off the mortuary guy. The sphere at the same time is now flying towards all three of them. The The mortuary guy is about to hit Liz with the axe because he's now, he like swooped, uh, he like swept Mike in a really fucking dramatic way, like actually sweeps him and like knocks him drops over. him on the ground. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The sphere comes out of nowhere, comes up and slams into the mortuary guy's hand into the, into the nearby door with yeah. the two blades. The drill comes out and starts drilling into his hand. Yeah. This guy gets probably the worst out of everybody. This, yeah, this is one of my, his death ultimately is one of my favorites. So as this is happening, now the golden ball comes out of nowhere <laughs> and the golden ball is coming down the hallway and the mortuary guy's freaking out because he knows he's stuck. He can't move because his hand is lodged into the door by the other sphere. He's got his ax in his other hand though. Liz and Mike run down the hallway away from the sphere. The mortuary guy takes his ax chops his hand off to get away from the golden sphere that's coming towards them. You're seeing it from the perspective of the ball. So the ball is coming right towards the mortuary guy. He chops his hand off with the ax. He goes one direction. Liz and Mike go the other. And the ball, instead of going after the mortuary guy, follows Mike and Liz down the hallway. And I think it's cool that the ball like doesn't, you know, discriminate between anybody it kills whoever's there you know friend or foe exactly mike and liz run into a room they slam the door shut and lock it they think they're safe for now cut back to reggie who's now in the basement who's looking around for liz because he doesn't know where he still he still thinks that she's missing the graver comes out of nowhere knocks reggie onto the ground with like a backhand. They start fighting each other. I love where uh, the, the graver kind of picks him up after, you know, sort of disarming him, puts him against the wall. And I like how Reggie, because by his throat, you know, lifting him up and everything. And clearly the graver is supposed to maybe have slight superhuman powers. But yeah. I like how Reggie pulls out his drill and fucking drills the guy in the in his underarm. I'm like, he doesn't drill his gut or something. He drills his underarm. And I'm like, oh, man, that's got to yes. fucking hurt. And the guy screams, like, you know, really loud. I'm like, fuck. Yeah, so, that, so the guy falls to the ground. Reggie, who, because when he knocked Reggie, when he backhanded Reggie, Reggie's gun, uh, his shotgun went by the wayside. Yeah. Drills the graver's arm. Reggie kind of collects himself, picks up his chainsaw, turns it on. And yells out, come on, you mother. <laughs> one of my favorite fucking lines in the movie. Suddenly yeah. the graver walks over to the tools that are near him and pulls out a chainsaw. That's like three times the size <laughs> of, of Reggie's, Reggie's little <laughs> yeah. toy chainsaw that he yeah, has. That's great. The, and the Reggie look on Reggie's face is fantastic. Yeah. And he just goes, oh, shit. Yeah. Which is fucking <laughs> great. Cut back to Liz and Mike inside this room that they've now huddled into Liz goes, I think it stopped it. The door she's, she's referring to the door and Mike goes, shit, I hope so. Suddenly out of nowhere. So there's a laser that goes through the door and the door in the, in the ball blasts through the door. Yeah. That door ain't doing shit. 
suddenly cue the sound of a lightsaber that comes on. (laughs) And so now the sphere doesn't just have the double blades and the drill and the spinning blade, but it's also got a laser as well. The laser light is shining out. Oh, really quickly before the ball blasted through, Liz gets freaked out by a rat that is also in the room with them. And that rat comes into play. So that's why I brought it up. Yeah. Yeah. The laser is now searching the whole room for Mike and Liz who are hiding behind some boxes. The laser beam starts to pass right by them. And suddenly out of nowhere, it turns and blasts the rat that it spots and explodes the rat. Which gives them a chance to sort of hightail it the other way. Yeah. They run out a side door away from the ball and the ball charges after them. This is one of my favorite shot scenes in the movie. Yeah. So like when, what, when, when Matt, uh, James Legros is like, they're running through the doors, he's shutting the doors and the ball is like knocking them each door open. That's awesome, dude. I yeah. fucking love it. Yeah. He's like throwing one door closed after another and it's being blasted open by this sphere. And, and Finally, the sphere is like, it's like, it's on the camera. Like it's it's sort of in front of the camera, so the camera yeah. also is like blasting through these doors and everything. The, the the effect, the the camera angle, the shot is really effective. It's yeah, it's really really cool. I'm not doing it justice by my breakdown. Finally, they get behind a metal door. It's like the coffin room where all the different coffins are, and they lock it. He looks around with Liz, and he takes a breather feeling like they're suddenly fine, they're safe. But then out of nowhere, a bloody stump comes out and grabs Liz, and it's the mortuary twin that got his that chopped his own hand off. Hey, he's relentless, dude. <laughs> he's battling. He's battling with Liz. Mike runs over to stop him. He's got Mike has to use both his arms to hold the one hand, the one arm back. So this guy also has like superhuman strength. Yeah. Suddenly, the silver sphere has this powerful drill, almost like a, like a, just a drill that can drill through metal and it bores through the hole and it blasts through the metal door. Now flying right towards the mortuary guy into his back and throws him into the corner of the room. And it's another great shot. This is another one that felt very Sam Raimi esque because the camera is kind of like on him as he's getting flown forward, but the camera, yeah, it's it's cool. It's 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 a camera trick, and he's clearly on the dolly with the camera because he stays sort of stationary away from the camera. But they're all, but they're all, both of them, the camera and him, are kind of flying backwards. It's it's an amazing shot, and it's the cool thing is it's like two of these awesome shots back to back first the the doors you know michael closing all the doors while the ball goes through it that shot's great and then followed up like in like two like a minute later by this one right here which is really fucking awesome yeah it's yeah i totally agree totally agree and this and you you can tell what happens next in this scene was probably shot in reverse because what happens is the sphere is in the guy's back right and it starts flailing. The, it's so strong. The, the sphere is so strong that it's moving the mortuary guy around the room like a rag doll. He's just flying all over the place. And he's, he, he goes from like one wall to the other. And suddenly 
you see the ball moving through his body and yeah. moving up through his neck and you yeah. see his neck expanding. And then suddenly you see just from his eyes, like the camera is just pointed on his eyes. You see his eyes start to bulge out and he's kind of screaming. You see that the, the drill has gone into his mouth. It's awesome. It's, a, it's such a, an amazing effect. Like it looks fantastic. I love He's now it. motionless. And, and I think it, the reason it's the my second favorite kill is because I'm not quite sure that he's alive, you know? That's why I yeah. think I like the priest kill better, but this one, this one's good. And they did, unfortunately, have to cut some effects stuff of, like, you actually seeing the ball go inside of him. They had to cut that and everything. Um, but what's left is I don't, honestly, I don't really think that, I like this version. I have no beef with it. I don't need to see any more. It all works for me. Whatever was cut, I'm fine with, man. I don't need I don't need it. I know people have often like complained, why aren't we getting the director's cut? Why, you know, sometimes there's a reason that there's not a director's cut. Sometimes there's a reason to just have it be the way it is. Yeah. It's totally fine. And side note, uh like with cyborg (laughs) yeah fucking cyborg save that for wrap up after dark (laughs) if you guys want to know my i have some very juicy things to say about uh jean-claude van damme's cyborg because i just talked to someone about that movie oh Uh, i'll save that for wrap up after dark okay will be the first one to hear it so sign up to our patreon and then listen in to our wrap up after dark episode because i'll mention it then Okay, I'll, I'll make a note when I'm editing this episode to uh, to bring it up while we're recording that. So, yeah, so the body slams against the, the wall. Uh, he's faced, the, the mortuary guy's faced into the wall. You don't see the ball yet in his mouth. Mike comes over, pulls out his forty five once again, that badass forty five. He must have loved that, by the way, because yeah. every time he pulls that forty five out, he looks so badass. Walks over to the body, pulls, grabs the mortuary guy by the shoulder to to turn him around revealing that the ball is now stuck in the guy's mouth and it's still trying to move, but it's like lodged in his teeth and his lips and his it's, and jaw. It's like, yeah. And it's like the spikes are coming out the side of his face. And yeah. Cause yeah. it's got this now other blade component, which is like basically a round, uh, a blade that goes around the entire ball. Yeah. That's what right. kind of ground into him. And I remember seeing this image in Fangoria, like, and I didn't know the yes. movie. So I was like, I thought this, maybe this guy was like a normal Joe. I didn't know he was like a bad guy, you know, but I remember seeing that image of the ball in his mouth and everything and just being like, so Ooh, gross. that's wild. It's wild. Liz, Liz says to Mike, she's like, let's go, Mike. And then he turns and looks at her. And he's like, are you okay? <laughs> Like of course she is. She's fine. Just fucking go. <laughs> so they they get out of the they get out of the room and split. Cut back to Reggie who's still having his chainsaw battle, which reminds me a little bit of Texas of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. Yeah, yeah, of course. The graver is charging Reggie. Reggie like kind of climbs up the the shelving of this uh, in the basement, and the graver uh, revs his chainsaw up up on Reggie's chest, and it cuts through his shotgun shells and his drill bits that are hanging on his chest. And that those straps fall by the wayside. Reggie like has this look of amazement. Like I'm still alive. Yeah. (laughs) And he, he hurdles over the chainsaw. It's a really great moment. Great stunt for Reggie Bannister. He hurdles over the chainsaw, just barely missing his wang. And he gets on the other side 
of the graver. He starts to run up the stairs. The graver grabs his ankle to pull him back down. He starts smacking Reggie a few times to startle Reggie. Reggie's groggy, but as the graver kind of goes to hack him again with the chainsaw, Reggie grabs his chainsaw and sticks it right between the graver's legs. Dude, just cutting just, off his wang and killing him. Just like how fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger kills Buzzsaw in Running Man. Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't even think about that. And Reggie's look on his face is like orgasmic. He's like, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Right? Of course it is. He fucking survived that shit. He survived this badass, brutal graver. The graver's now dead. He leaves his chainsaw there. He leaves all his other shotgun shells and everything, but he picks up his four-barrel shotgun, starts to go up the stairs, and then out of nowhere, four of the little dwarves come out right behind Reggie. Reggie realizes that he's got to take him out. He turns around, points the four-barrel shotgun at the dwarves, pulls the trigger, and blasts through all four dwarves at the exact same time. And the only problem... I have with this movie is that Reggie drops his shotgun. He throws it away now. I'm like, it works. I mean, it's like, why would you throw that shotgun away? It fucking works. He's thrown everything away. He didn't go back for his chainsaw. He didn't go back for his drill. He didn't go back for any of the bullets. He just left everything there. I guess the fear is that if there's four of those evil Jawas, there's probably more, right? Like I said, but it's not like he, he like he threw it down because there were more coming. He almost kind of even looks at the shotgun and and throws it down. And I'm like, like I don't need this anymore. It's like, yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it, that scene frustrates me too. It's the only scene in this movie that frustrates me. It's the only fucking scene. Yeah, because he just abandons all his weapons. Yeah. Quick scene of Kemi. Uh, on the side of the road with Liz's car. It's broken down, and she's kind of stuck. And she starts walking off down the road. Cut back to Mike and Liz slowly exiting the coffin room. And when they do, Mike grabs a piece of the curtain that's nearby, the velvet curtains that are in the coffin room. And he starts walking out into the hallway with Liz. They walk past the door where the severed hand was <laughs> from the mortuary twin. And he says, to, he says to Liz, wait a second. And he walks over and he puts the curtain, velvet curtain piece over the ball. And she's like, what the hell are you, what the hell are you doing? And he's kind of tugging on the ball, keeping the hand. He's trying to dislodge the ball, but also keep the hand intact on the ball because he says, as long as the ball's embedded in flesh, it's safe. We might need it later. After he does that, pulls it free, they start to, he starts to move out with Liz with him. And then out of nowhere, Reggie grabs him. He goes, hey, scares the shit <laughs> yeah. out of them. <laughs> bastard, you bastard. And he says, Reggie says to Mike as he's looking at the hand, the, the, the hand in the velvet wrap or whatever, he's like, where's the rest of the guy? And Mike <laughs> says, I'll tell you later. And then this is funny because he he <laughs> he gives the the ball hand to Liz so he can get his blowtorch. He says to Liz, "Here, I'll trade you." He takes his blowtorch from Liz cuz Liz has his blowtorch all of a sudden. Yeah, I guess cuz he was popping the hand off, you know. Yeah. 
So he takes the blowtorch. She gives him the, he gives her the hand with the ball in it. And then she's holding it and she looks at it all gross and she hands it to Reggie. And Reggie's like, oh, it's really, really a funny moment. It's like hot potato moment, right? Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. A little, little bit of levity. Yes. There's a quick cut to Kemi finding the hearse and it's empty. She hot wires it. Which I think is a cool, cool that they showed that that she knew how to hotwire shit because yeah. she's been on the road for ten years, right? Yeah, hitchhiking, of course. And she's got a big smile on her face, and she drives off. Cut back to Reggie, Mike, and Liz in the embalming room. This is when things get real. Yeah, this, um, I kind of tracked the time, and this movie was very like everything happened at the exact like like the the first act ended at the right moment the the second act ended you know now we're like 10 minutes exactly 10 minutes left in the movie and it's the climax of course it's the climax so you get to see the moment we've all been waiting for mike has the ball in the hand he's able to like dislodge the ball from the hand and quickly shove it into the keyhole and as soon as he does the room that has been sealed up opens up to reveal the gateway to the other dimension and what a cool set it's like this white room with those two pillar things those two metal sound pillars what you know tuning they're not tuning forks but they kind of like they they hum or something you know they are like tuning forks though because in the original one um this room looks just like it did in the original yeah with a few added details, like the all the all the canisters of all the uh, gross dwarves. Yeah. Um, but it's essentially the same room, which is great. They kept it the same. Okay. And the tuning forks in the original one, uh, Reggie like has a moment when he's jamming with Jody, where he uses the tuning fork, and it and so he realizes, oh, if I put my hands on top of these two things, I can cause them to stop. Why they didn't do that in this one? Well, actually. They don't have a moment to do that. Yeah, yeah, they don't. And you're right. That's that's an image that is in my head. I know I've seen it with Reggie with his hands on top of the the two fork things. Yes, yeah, the two little poles. At this point now, the three of them are standing in the the doorway. They walk in. Mike has his 45. Reggie has the blowtorch. And Liz walks in with them as well. Mike walks Liz over to the portal and starts showing her how it works, right? Like... He puts his hand into the portal and then pulls it out. And it's, it's a, a very great simple if, it's a shot. Simple, it is because you can tell there's a, a mirror sort of kind of blocking it, you know, yeah. where the it, the way it's angled, you can tell it's a mirror and everything. But it's it's all in camera. It's all done in camera. So it works. Yeah, it totally works. At the same time, Reggie walks over to the wall of black canisters to see what's inside them. And he sees like a grotesque looking liquefied dwarf kind of floating around in there yeah and it's like alive it's like blinking and looking at him it's not like it's in suspended animation or something so disgusting so liz and mike are looking at this at the gateway portal and then reggie's like reggie stands up in the hall in the entrance of the room then he goes come on let's Let's torch this place and get out of here, right? And then right when he does, the camera pans over to reveal that the tall man is behind Reggie. Right behind it's him, yeah. a very dramatic moment. The tall man knocks Reggie to the side, 
grabs Liz and Mike by their necks, lifting them up, looks at them both, throws Mike. Like, he's like, oh, I just, you know, he's looking at them both and he's like, I, I get the, I assume that he's like, oh, I, I only need one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he throws, one of you two. he throws Mike away. Mike flies into the portal. Reggie runs after him to grab him before it's too late. And he gets sucked into the portal as well. But his feet just happen to hook around the pole so that he doesn't get stuck. He does, yeah, he doesn't go all the way in. The tall man has now totally disregarded Mike and Reggie, carries Liz over to the embalming table, straps her down, and puts like uh, gauze in her mouth so she can't scream, even though she's trying to. And he's getting her ready to basically start embalming her while she's alive. Oh, God. And we know what's inside that embalming liquid. Yes, we do. Acid. (laughs) We cut back to Mike and Reggie, and we get our first look at what is in the other dimension. Did we see that in the last movie at all? Did we see this? We did. We did. It's a little bit different. It it wasn't as detailed as this is. Okay. Okay. Um, This looks like Mars, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's empty canisters everywhere where dwarves are like coming out of the canisters. Yeah. One dwarf is starting to slide his way towards Mike. So good. It's so awesome, dude. And it's like within inches of his face. uh, But Mike is able to climb up Reggie and get out of the portal. He's now out of the portal, kind of coming to, because it's it's like, basically, they can barely breathe. Yeah, because it's an alternate dimension, I imagine. And, you yes. know, it's... And they're trying to talk, and it's, like, all distorted and everything. Yeah. yeah. You, you get the sense that it's, it's, it's a very inhospitable environment. Exactly. Yeah, Mike has now climbed out, and, and now that weird, grotesque-looking dwarf, liquefied, slimy one is moving towards Reggie. And it's almost in his face. It's like inches within inches. his face. Yeah, it's like it's about to touch him. I love it. And then Reggie gets pulled out. Reggie's screaming, because ah, he's so good at screaming. And and Reggie, yeah, Reggie gets pulled out just in time by Mike. That's all. Yeah, you're free. right. It's that dwarf thing. That And I love how its eyes were closed. It just, it looked a little different, and I love the way it looked. But yeah, it was it was on top of Reggie when he got pulled out. So gross and so cool, and I wanted to see more of that. Yeah, and I'm sure. I mean, I I think I think Ravager gets into that stuff probably a bit more. I mean, I've never seen it, but I I mean, everyone wanted to see more of that when they saw this movie. I'm sure. Of course, of course. At this point, the tall man is about to stab Liz in the neck with this giant embalming needle. Oof! And right before he does, Mike yells out, "Hey!" To the tall man. Tall man stops before he jams her, the, the needle in her neck. Looks over at Mike, who's standing right by the entrance to the, the portal room. Has his hand on the sphere and says, suck on this. And he pulls the sphere out, and the sphere flies right at the tall man, jams its blades right into the tall man's head. Awesome. And starts so drilling awesome. into his head. Yeah, it's so cool. Fucking cool. The minute it does... It starts spurting out yellow liquid, and the tall man's starting to scream. But then he grabs the ball, and he crushes it like a piece of tinfoil. In yeah. fact, it is a piece of tinfoil that he throws on the ground. Yeah. Mike and Reggie are, like, blown away that he's just crushed this silver sphere. And then now he's got this 
big hole in his head, right? He grabs Mike by the throat and he lifts him off the ground. Suddenly, in the hole in his head, this weird creature comes out with these weird hooks and starts trying to, like, swipe at Mike's head. And this reminds me of the little weird fly creature thing that came out of the tall man's finger in the original Phantasm when he slams, uh, when he cuts the the tall man's fingers off when the tall man's trying to grab him. Okay. Anyways, I think that's like a kind of a callback to the, there's these weird creatures that live inside of the tall man. And I love it. I don't need an explanation for it. It, it, Give me all of it. Give me all the weird shit right now. Right. So this thing is like trying to slash at Mike. And then fortunately, Reggie, who's still fully aware and, and resilient grabs the, the, the spike that, was going to get shoved into Liz and shoves it into the tall man's back. And Liz turns on the embalming fluid, which is hydrochloric acid. Yeah. And such, we get a great effect of the tall man starting to fucking melt, dude, from it, from inside. So Mike falls to the ground, but in the process of doing that, he rips the, the weird thing that was in the tall man's head out. Yeah. And throws it on the ground, which is a great moment. And now, yeah, the acid is eating through the tall man. Tall man's screaming, rightfully so. You see him just melting. Yeah, his hand fucking, fucking melts awesome. off. I love, I love that shot of the 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 skin melting off his hand and everything. Yep. Reggie has the blowtorch. He says, "Come on, let's get the hell out of here." They start torching the entire room, which is awesome. As they're making their way out of the embalming room, you know they're really close to the exit. They're torching the entire mausoleum. When they get out of the mausoleum, who happens to drive up but Kemi in the hearse? Get in, guys. (laughs) She yells, get in. Mike and Liz get in the in the trunk of the hearse or the the back. Yeah, the back where where the the coffin coffin is. Go. Yeah. Reggie gets in the passenger seat. They drive off as the mortuary burns down to the ground. As they drive off, they're all excited and happy. Mike and Liz are like looking at Reggie and Kemi through the little peephole window, kind of like they have on, you know, limousines and shit like that. Yahoo, we did it. Reggie's like, we nailed that son of a bitch. And Liz throws her arms around Mike, gives him a big kiss. Reggie watches them and smiles. And Reggie goes, whoa, whoa, hey, Mike, hey, Mike. Make sure whatever's in that coffin is dead. Mike, again, draws his forty-five, all badass, opens up the coffin. It's empty. Mike says, empty, slams it shut, big smile on his face. Suddenly, the divider between them, the little window, like a, like a steel window goes up to, to keep them separated now. Like, uh, Kemi closes the window, basically. Cut to Reggie looking at Kemi and going, hey, babe, you know, you could have run, but thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> and then he's looking at her and, and she's like kind of looking at him, but not saying a whole lot and not saying anything, actually. And he goes, you know, I've been thinking about us. And she's like playing with her hair. But as he says that, she pulls a big chunk of her hair out of her head. 
And he freaks out. Yeah, because it's a giant. I mean, it's a massive piece of, of just skin just ripped away. And this this that image is burned into my brain from the first time watching this movie. That that image was devastating to me as a kid because I was so happy. I'm like, they yeah. did it. They got away. Oh, no. Don't do what you're about to do. But they do it. <laughs> Cut to the exterior of the hearse. You see it swerving around. Reggie's screaming. Mike and Liz in the back of the hearse look at each other while they hear the screaming go on. Suddenly the hearse stops. I like that you don't see what happens to Reggie right there. He like after the hearse stops, there's like a beat, you know, and the the Mike and and Liz are kind of looking around. Then all of a sudden Reggie, you know, appears at the back window and he's so fucked up and it's a little bit of a jump scare, but it's like, it's just, he's so messed up. And at this point, I mean, you're like, my God, is he dead? I mean, if this is the last movie you watch, my takeaway is that, yeah, he is dead. Yeah, his face is all carved up from looking like something just, like, scratched the shit out of his face. Yeah. He's saying, like, help me, help me, and then kind of flails off to the side of the road where he's passed, where he's looks dead on the side of the road. Yeah. Mike yells out, Reggie! The car drives off. You see an exterior shot of the hearse driving off and Reggie on the side of the road, not moving, probably dead. Yeah. And then... Mike grabs Liz and pulls her close and he's like, listen to me. This is not happening. We're going to wake up. It's a dream. And Liz goes, it's only a dream. And then suddenly the window compartment that was closed earlier slams open. It's the tall man who's now missing a section of his head where the hair was pulled away. Yeah, same, same as Kemi. Yeah. So Liz goes, it's only a dream. And the tall man goes, no, it's not. And then right after that happens, Two hands crash through the back of the hearse, pulling Liz and Mike out, which we later find out in part three is Reggie. Oh, okay. So that is is that how it goes? So so Reggie pulled them out in part. Okay. And so is it the same? Is Liz in part three as well? She is. And then she gets killed, I believe. I'm trying to remember. It's been a while. I haven't seen that movie in over a decade but i'm pretty sure she gets killed yeah i don't remember her really being in it for me i remember mostly reggie the african-american girls i think one of them dies um but then i don't really remember like how they sort of fight back with against you know the the tall man and there's another little kid in that one and he's not a very good actor he's kind of annoying to me but okay you know yeah regardless of that they get pulled out of the window camera goes to black cue the theme song to Phantasm and credits written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Yeah, Phantasm dude. 2, the end. Yeah, dude. What a great movie, man. And and you're right. Like if if this is all you ever see, um, you could go back and, you know, rewatch part one. You don't have to go forward with part three or anything like that. This is weirdly, there aren't too many movies. I guess Aliens is another one, like a sequel that can kind of stand on its own. You oh, don't yeah. really that's you Good know. example. Yeah. You don't really need to watch the, the one prior, but if you do, it'll add more to what you're viewing. Um, I, I can't really talk about three or on because I haven't seen them in forever, but yeah. I do remember enjoying I do remember enjoying three a lot. So I, I would like to rewatch it and I obviously we we will watch all of them at some point, but 
to keep the discussion, you know, the final discussion, just a part two. Yeah. Great world building. The movie, like I said multiple times, is so economical in the best ways possible by a master craftsman of low-budget film. He knows exactly what to put on screen, exactly what not to put on screen. Like, we never needed to see Aunt Martha or Reggie's wife or daughter. We didn't need to see them. You know what I mean? Like, it worked perfectly the way it was, and then this movie just kicked off into what it was. It's a horror adventure a horror fantasy fairy tale movie it's 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 a movie that very few films exist like this movie and uh, it's very unique in that regard and and i'm sure by this point everyone has seen it that's listening to this episode Um, but if you haven't go check it out if you haven't seen it in a while go revisit it i i and i gotta say i love james legro i he's my michael Personally, I, I like him better than A. Michael Baldwin. But, um, I mean, I don't think my A. Michael Baldwin's, like, a bad actor. It's just James Legro, Like you said at the beginning, he has more of that leading man look to him, you know? And this movie fucking rocks, dude. It's great. Like, it makes my mind spin with all the possibilities of world building. And I think that is truly what I love the most about the Phantasm series. But right now, specifically, Phantasm 2. Yeah, not not the harp on a Michael Baldwin at all. In fact, in fact, I love him in the first Phantasm movie. I think that he's a really good child actor. It's just one of those child actors that when he got older, it didn't he didn't fit the mold of what James Legro ultimately turned Michael into. Because in the third one, it's now a Michael Baldwin wearing James Legro's outfit. Yeah. the t-shirt and the thermal and you're like uh, it doesn't work because he's kind of a lanky guy yeah just yeah. doesn't look and james the kind of he's you know he's kind of jacked up he's yeah. muscly he was, so he was muscular he was pretty thick in this movie yeah so i mean th- again that's why i choose this that's why i chose this film because i feel like it is a standalone sequel uh it's a sequel in in many regards because obviously it's piggybacking off of a cult classic uh, but man, as a standalone film, it totally works and it has to, it came out eight years after the original. It's got well nine years after the original, if you think about it, cause it came out in 88 and the original one is uh 79. So it's got to be a film that can stand on its own two legs. It's got an entirely new audience, you know, not that many movies, take a break that long especially nowadays to drop a sequel right i think the original alien and aliens i think there might be a similar time break in between those two yeah maybe that's why i'm always comparing the two like going oh this is the aliens of horror films to me yeah it is i think it's i think it's very apt and and it's it's got it's independent conventions where you feel like it's still an indie movie with a big budget and which also feels badass because you're like that's what you hope for like man if they just got a little bit more money to fix that cgi or if they had a little bit more money to recast this part what could they have done well you're seeing it with this one and you know i hope i did a service to it and breaking it down uh i love all the tidbits that you brought up and damn everyone listening i hope 
this was uh, as good of a ride for you as it was for us because it was one hell of a ride in that sweet Hemikuda. And for me, the this movie ends the series. Reggie didn't die. Michael and Liz get pulled out by Reggie, and the story continues in another direction. Not Phantasm Three, personally. I have my own world building that I did with my action figures. And by the way, you know, McFarlane put all those horror action figures out, right? He released a tall man uh, with little with a little dwarf at one point. I'm like, man, I wish they had made a Reggie and Mike action figures. Those would have been so badass. Yeah, it makes you wonder if maybe they didn't get the license or something for it. But yeah, yeah, dude, I'm I'm with you, man. Everything you said, it's it's a great fucking movie. So guys and gals, hope you all enjoyed this ride as much as we did. Uh, if you want more of of this kind of goodness, then uh, go check out the Carpenter Factor on our Patreon page. Like Zach said, we are about halfway. Well, we're more than halfway through John Carpenter's stuff yeah. right now, his filmography, and uh, we have pretty much an entire year more to go through it uh this month by the time you listen to this i think the following week we will we will be dropping the um the they live episode i've already edited edited it and and queued it up and everything i just forgot which day i made it for um and uh and then next month we'll be diving into the lesser carpenter stuff like memoirs of an invisible man but i'm still excited i'm still excited to see the movie still excited about the discussion that Same. we are going to have so check Same. check that out we are on uh, patreon.com slash podcasting after dark that's patreon.com slash podcasting after dark i am also excited for march martial arts madness at two dollar late fee in march can you tee that up for us buddy what's going on with martial arts madness and why did well, you make you know, it so hard for me to say? <laughs> Martial arts man, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Um, Marlboro. Yeah. So we normally are a every other week uh, podcast all over at two dollar late fee. Every two weeks we drop a new episode. But in March for Martial Art Madness, we're dropping not one, not two, not three, but four. Four packed episodes of $2 Late Fee. Three interviews. Our 100th episode is coming up. We are dropping our 100th episode. I believe it'll be the second episode of March. Um, Very special stuff. I don't want to give it all away. If you're a patron, you'll know ahead of time what we're doing for the month of March. But I've already recorded one of the interviews with Dustin. um, And we've got... Oh, man. All I'm going to say is tune in to $2 late fee in March. We've got a fully stacked month. Uh, we're we're firing on all cylinders. And, you know, again, if you're a patron, you'll know ahead of time who some of our guests are. Because if you become a patron for $2 late fee, you get to ask the questions to the guests. Uh, Corey is a patron. And uh, many of you listening are patrons. But if you want to be a patron, go to patreon.com. Go to patreon.com slash $2LateFee to sign up and be a part of the martial arts fun. We've also got some cool merchandise that's going to be coming out exclusively courtesy of uh, Preserve Dragons. They make some, he made, Martin Go is an amazing artist, and he did some exclusive stuff for $2LateFee for the month of March. And, you know, as we always say, you know, we all have Patreons. Uh, you know, all, all, every podcast has a Patreon and everything. 
a free way to help out every podcast that you listen to. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You know, leave one for us. Leave one for $2 late fee. Leave one for whatever podcasts you listen to. Um, It's a free way, and they really do go a long way in getting new listeners in front of all of our shows and everything. So, you know, we appreciate all the the Patreon support. We really do. But that is a free way to help help every show out. And, of course, just tell your friends about us. Tell your friends about $2 late fee and everything. Yeah. Go to TeePublic and buy a T-shirt from one of our shows. We've got great designs. However you can support us. You know, even writing messages on Instagram. Everybody who's written messages to us talking about the stuff they enjoy, thank you guys. Thank you for all the support, uh, the continued support. We love you all. You know that. And uh, without you guys, we'd be just talking in to ourselves, which would be totally fine. <laughs> but thank you for board. thank you for listening and uh, being a part of the fun. Yes. Everything you just said, I reiterate all of it. And as always, we'll get you on the dark side. Be sure to subscribe to Podcasting After Dark and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Support Podcasting After Dark on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcasting After Dark. And visit us next time for another installment of Podcasting After Dark with Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Imagine being one of the last people on Earth being trapped alone with something not human. Something always watching. Something always waiting. What would you do? Where would you run? Where would you hide? If you were haunted for seven winters alone. Podcasting After Dark presents Seven Winters Alone. A dystopian haunted house story by David Irons. Available now in paperback and ebook.